The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when a downer of a rabbit starts telling you to do things while you sleep? Would you listen to that doomsaying little bunny, or would you let the world burn? Is that bunny, who stares at you through unblinking bulbous plaster eyes, a sign of a fractured mind? or perfectly understandable results of a collapsing tangential universe, a simple natural occurrence of the end of days. Well, let's find out, because today we are talking about Richard Kelly's 2001 film Donnie Darko, and Richard Kelly's 2005 film Donnie Darko, The Director's Cut, which, as it turns out, are in fact two entirely separate films. So sit back and embrace the daytime hallucination as we try to wade through the destabilized mythic space of Kelly's constantly shifting universe. Brought to you by Sleepwalking Through Spacetime, Not-So-Demonic Bunnies, The Manic Grin of Millennial Angst, The Possible Superpowers of Schizophrenia, and The Instability of Tangent Worlds. And of course, our safe word today is clarity. Anything to add, Benji? Blendon, I just don't think you get the importance of this. I mean, sometimes I doubt your commitment to putting baby in a corner and filming it. That took a turn I was not expecting. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space. Boy. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Ninja! I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Well. Oh, hi, Mark. Hi, Benji. Oh, uh, London. London, how are you? You're there, London. And uh, I, I can't tell. Is anyone else here today? You're such a gimmicky little hack. Of course, somebody is here today that listeners can't see. And it is our dear Dr. Vaughn, Michelle. We brought her back in on this one because this needs more therapy talk and whatnot as uh the blunda and i we obviously you know need therapy a whole lot we just don't really understand the application thereof of therapy and given that there are many scenes of therapy in this movie we thought it would be good to bring in someone who actually knows what the hell they're talking about michelle would you like to give us a little background on your expertise <laughs> i'm dr vaughn to those of you who are into that or dr v we're all into that <laughs> licensed clinical psychologist associate professor of psychology Michelle will be uh, joining us uh, throughout as we come to important scenes that she can give an expert opinion on. Now, how did you first hear about this movie, Benji? I first heard about this movie when I first saw this movie in 2001. I, uh, this movie came out when I was a freshman at the University of Missouri. And in Columbia, there was the one independent theater, Ragtag Cinema. I recall some friends of mine... Uh, said, hey, we're going to go to Ragtag and see whatever's playing. Do you want to come along? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. We decide whatever's playing when we get there, we're going to watch that. And that was Donnie Darko. So I did, in fact, see this movie in a theater, not really a big theater, but a theater all the same. I was not in college yet when this came out, but I do think I saw it in 
college. This is very much a college movie, I feel. Yes. It is one of those movies that, especially in the early 2000s, there were a couple of shortlist films of you weren't anyone in America unless you'd seen these films. <laughs> At least in the pretentious world of early millennial hipster sensibilities when it came to film. I could really see a double bill of this in Garden State. Yes, I think I actually saw both Donnie Darko and Garden State around the same, at least in the same month, if not the same week. Right? <laughs> that was the sort of rite of passage. <laughs> it really is a back-to-back kind of thing. And then you bought yeah. the soundtrack to both movies, too. Uh, that is also true. It has taken me a while to fully appreciate Darnia Darko in the way that I do now. I think when I first saw it, I was like, yeah, this is good, but it didn't really grab my soul in the way that I then watched it again a couple years later, and I was like, no, actually, this is really poetic and beautiful, and so it's kind of grown on me over time. Each time I watch it, I like it more. So now I really like Donnie Darko because I've seen it quite a few times, <laughs> but I do remember it was one of those films that that did take a watch or two just because there's so much going on in it. I had the same experience with the Interpol album that same year. <laughs> I, no, actually, it was the year before Interpol's first album had come out, and I was like, I don't get it. And then I was listening to it at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was like, oh my god, this is a fucking beautiful band. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes it takes a little bit, you know? I can see that. Oddly enough, I think that when I saw it in 2001... I don't recall having rewatched the movie between now and then. Here we are nearly 20 years later. But oddly, when I was rewatching it, like, I still remembered a lot of the movie. And to me, that's just a sign of really good cinema that's impacting you on a visual and, you know, intellectual what have you level. I think that was a really good uh, sign that the movie is. It's top notch. And I've, well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed rewatching the movie. And then when I began to watch more versions of the movie, that's when things began to waver a bit for me. So what is the... What do we start with? Worst or best? Why can't I ever keep that straight? Because you have no objective view on reality, London. That's true. That's why Tony Darko has grown on me. <laughs> what is the best thing about this movie? What is the worst thing about this movie? Pick one. I'm going to have to be a bit of an ass uh, with this because the best thing and the worst thing about this movie are both Richard Kelly. Agreed. Oh, right. God damn it. I hate when we agree on this. No, I, I really, I do appreciate Richard Kelly and I feel really bad for him. So I don't want to say he's the worst thing about this movie, but I do think maybe Richard Kelly, and we'll get into this, has a story that he really, really wants to tell. And it's not necessarily the story that people want to hear. <laughs> and so that keeps kind of becoming a disconnect for, I think, him as an artist. And I do have a lot of empathy for that, so I don't want to rake him totally over some sort of burning hellfire coals for his attempt to tell the story that's within yeah. him. But. Having listened to multiple commentaries with Richard Kelly talking about his film, the impression I get it is that he's a very intelligent guy and a very good visual storyteller. However, his flaw, I would say, is that he is terrified of people making the wrong interpretation of his work. He is and he's not. I would say that it's a little bit of the exact opposite of what we discussed about William Friedkin last time around, where you said that for William Friedkin, people ask him, like, you know, at the very end of Killer Joe, did she pull the trigger? Did she not pull the trigger? And he just says, I, I can't tell you, you know. The, Fuck if I know. I don't know. It's, 
I am only a vessel to tell the story of these characters for a brief amount of time after the movie is done. That's all there is to it. What can I say? Whereas I feel if Richard Kelly made a movie like Killer Joe, uh, one, he would have a very definite answer for you on whether or not Dottie pulled the trigger at the very end of that movie, and would also be very upset with you if your interpretation of it disagreed with his. And there would be time travel. Yes, there would be time travel as well. <laughs> Somewhere. He'd work it in there. Killer Joe would, uh, he, would have a, a, uh, he would have a Lincoln that he drove at 88 miles an hour to go back in time. <laughs> No, what he would do is he would have a Lincoln from 2017 in a movie that was actually supposed to be set in 2015, and that detail should clue us in to the fact that time travel is involved because that car would not have yet been available. That is the Richard Kelly time travel way. And I, I totally adore him for it, but at the same time, it's like, oh, honey. Okay, so let's get into why we're talking about... Richard Kelly's time travel sensibilities. Let's go ahead and get our lightning summary. So Donnie Darko doesn't exactly have a lightning summary because it's going to be about a boy, Jake Gyllenhaal, who may or may not be sleepwalking in what may or may not be the core universe and he's going to start getting haunted by visions of this, what most people call a demonic bunny, but is not actually demonic at all, who tells him to do things, and eventually the world may or may not collapse on itself based on a series of actions that Jake Gyllenhaal will proceed to do throughout the course of this film. That's uh, it's pretty accurate. That's a good lightning summary of a, of a movie that defies lightning summaries. So, yeah, let's let's break that down. What the fuck? Let's let's get into this. Let's open. And we want to make clear when we are talking about this movie, we are talking specifically about the theatrical cut of the film. We'll discuss the director's cut after that, but we're just going over the theatrical cut of the movie first. Yeah, so that'll be the format. Theatrical, we'll briefly touch on some things about the theatrical and then the scenes, the added scenes. We won't go all the way back through the movie. We'll just talk about what scenes were added to the director's cut. So, in this one, we wake up on a hill, or a crumpled body atop a hill wakes up around dawn. And we meet our hero, if one can call him that, Donnie Darko, played by, or I would say, mastered, masterfully played by, Jake G. Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes, he looks at oh, or out over the sky and just sort of smiles. Yeah, I woke up on a cliff again. Badass. Tell us about, uh, how do you like the song that's playing as he bikes into town? I really love the song selections all the way through this. So I think the theatrical cut, it's The Killing Moon correct that sort of starts us out starts us off really strong too and it's very atmospheric all of the songs just really flow with this and we will learn later from the director's commentary that music is very very important to richard kelly and it often is one of the core things that he writes screenplays around uh that he has playing in the background that inspires him and so the music is very cultivated in this film the music will also shift around a little bit during the director's cut, but we're not getting into that yet. Right now, The Killing Moon works here. What did you think? I really enjoyed this. I, again, 
I, I'll, I'll enjoy it. I'll, I'll get into things that I didn't enjoy about the director's cut later on. Donnie gets into town. He bikes into town. We get a really cool tracking shot action of him pulling up to his house. His dad is out there, you know, blowing the leaves around. We first get a glimpse of Donnie's sister, played by Jake Gyllenhaal's real-life sister, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Is it Gyllenhaal or Gyllenhaal? I always get that wrong. Fuck if I know. I don't know. I always thought Ryan Philippi's last name was Philippe until I heard him in an interview and he's like, actually, it's pronounced Philippi. And I was like, you shouldn't tell people that. So I'm thinking the Gyllenhaals are probably the same way. It's probably some crazy way of pronouncing it, but I don't even know. <laughs> the G is actually <laughs> silence. Gyllenhaal. We see the fan. We see part of the family. We see his little sister jumping on the trampoline. Uh, we see mom played by President Rosalind herself, uh, Mary McDonald, uh, reading Stephen King's It because the 80s. Yeah, well, that's the thing is we're getting little hints, maybe. But at the same time, this also could, up until now, be the 2000s because the early 2000s and the late 80s, outside of the neon punk type of aesthetic that 80s dress is sort of known for, a lot of the 80s stuff and the early 2000s stuff was actually kind of similar. So... It's like, ah, this could be the early 2000s. And then all of a sudden, cut to the dinner table and Maggie Gyllenhaal's like, I'm going to vote for Dukakis. And you're like, all right, I guess we're doing the 80s. I remember (laughs) when I first saw this movie and I thought to myself, Dukakis. Now there's a name I have not heard for a very long time. It's kind of a fun name to say. Dukakis, yeah. I didn't really know too much about Michael Dukakis uh, when I was 18 because I was... uh, Let's see, that was 88, so that would have, I would have been five, six years old. And yet, it, it's a name that's, that lingers from the 80s, so it's a fun way of timestamping this. I really liked this timestamp decision, so instead of... I mean, it will actually later flash the date as well, but instead of finding an awkward way to say, well, you know, it's 1988, so blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you just have this one character that's like, I'm going to vote for Dukakis. So you're like, okay, so it's the election in which... eases you in a little bit more, I would say. We then get the card stamp that lets us know that this is October 2nd, 1988. So in case we don't know the year that... Dukakis is running for election. (laughs) Did you forget the year this election took place? Don't worry, we got you covered. This is, yeah, starting out October 1988. This film will take place over the course of 28 days. Coincidentally, also filmed over the course of 28 days. I don't think in sequence, but just so happened that it was the same amount of time. No, from what I can tell from the director's commentary, there was a lot of block shooting, so like all the the classroom scenes were shot in one go, Mm -hmm. all the scenes at the house, and all that because they had to like they had to film like all of Drew Barrymore's scenes really quick because she was only around for a week. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, just coincidentally, it shot in the same amount of days that the film theoretically takes place, but yeah, not in sequence. And we will learn quickly that Jake Gyllenhaal has a tendency to sleepwalk, and whenever he sleepwalks, he has this amazingly creepy smile. It's so manic. Uh, yeah, this is why I say that this is masterfully played by uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, because I think only he could play it like this. I, I don't think he 
would look as creepy as this until Nightcrawler. Fair. Yeah, no, because he does have this certain wholesomeness to him sometimes. Other, Not as much as Tobey Maguire. I mean, he's always kind of been the edgy Tobey mm. Maguire, <laughs> which is ironic because Tobey yeah. Maguire, as we've discussed in Don's Plum, is just this dark, seething rage clusterfuck of a human being. I feel like Tobey Maguire behaves like Jake Gyllenhaal looks. Yeah. <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal or Donnie Darko is going to sleepwalk that night and the bunny is going to tell him some information. That's going to be 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. I, I think you phrased that wrong. It's more like 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes. 28 seconds. 12 seconds. Well, by the start time he finishes saying it, it's going to be 12 seconds. It's going to be 12 seconds by the okay. time he finishes. So, Carry yeah. on. What? Yeah. Well, that's it. The world is going the world is going to end. I'm just saying you can't give people 14 more seconds and it's just not fair, you know, for the apocalypse <laughs> to sneak up on them. <laughs> Very and precise. they're like, I thought and I had 14 more seconds. Donnie is just rightfully questioning, uh, why? But we don't know why. Fade to the next scene. When Donnie wakes up on the golf green, uh, he's awakened by some other, you know, member of the country club and Mr. Patrick Swayze. Yay, the Swayze. The Swayze. So Jim Cunningham, Patrick Swayze's character, is going to be curiously just sort of dropped throughout this movie into different scenes. We could talk about that, the, the what is up with Jim Cunningham's character's role well, in this film. We'll, but we'll find out later on, but... <laughs> we'll find out what he does in his general life, but what purpose he serves in this movie is kind of Oh, I, I get what question. you're saying there, because... As we learn about him, his role, his job as a motivational speaker, you kind of get the idea that he's like meant to be like a Tony Robbins type guy or some sort of other spiritual motivational speaker and is someone who would be like bouncing around giving a lot of talks. But as the movie goes along, it does seem like he is just someone who happens to live in town and shows up at schools every now and then. He shows up the school a lot, which is kind of strange, too. He's no Tappy Tibbins, really, is the takeaway here, in terms of his central... Oh, God. That's killing me. Who is Tappy Tibbins? Why am I blanking Reckling on that? Reckon for a dream. We got a winner. Oh, Choose by that's... Tappy. Choose, yes. choose, choose. Tappy right. Tibbins. So, <laughs> no red meat. He wakes up on the golf course. He gets sent home. Mm-hmm. Told he's not got to fall asleep on golf He's got the, the date, the time written out on his arm. Yes, and at some point, we're, he's going to sleepwalk a couple of times, and one of these times, he's going to get back to his house to find that his bedroom has been collapsed in on itself by a piece of airline craft something, piece of a plane. Mm-hmm. And his family is standing outside the house as he comes back from this golf course, not looking super concerned about where Donnie may or may not be. I kind of noticed that. Like, they're just, like, they're chilling there. And then Donnie walks up, and they're excited to see him. But at the same time, like, you didn't look that broken up. <laughs> I agree. There is, like, you could have turned the, the concern for, for Donnie up, you know, 
take it up about 20%, just a little bit more. You're like, oh, Donnie, we're so relieved you're here. But instead, it's more like, oh, there you are. Yeah, there you are. A piece of a plane fell through your, <laughs> your bedroom window. Could have killed you. Didn't. Glad you're alive. And there's all of these sort of men in black with their sunglasses here at the mm, scene. Yes, men in black. Wonderful. We'll see any of them again in pointless small roles. And they have them sign some paperwork because they don't know where this came from. They don't yeah. know what main plane is missing a piece or would have been flying overhead at this point in time. It's a mystery. It's an end of the Cold War mystery. Yes, and they, the, F, the FAA, they pull out all the stops. They get this family the money to stay at a Holiday Inn. That's right, a Holiday Inn. FAA don't fuck around with its hotels. Yeah, so they get to just kind of hang out there. And then we get to the school. Oh, yes. This, okay, this, the intro for the school, when I saw this the first time around, this is where I thought to myself, like, oh, fuck, yeah, this movie is amazing. Because I, you don't see this sort of thing terribly often in films, at least I hadn't at the time. What we have is this beautiful opening sequence where it's like a, a handful of steady cam shots of Donnie hopping off the, the rear door of his bus. The camera is tilted 90 degrees so that, like, his body fills the frame briefly, and then it reverts back to level, follows him into the school. We go about to the school. We meet Jenna Malone's character, Gretchen, who Jenna Malone, I swear, looks like she's 10 years old in this movie. She looks really, really young. Yeah, she does. Although she kept looking kind of her same age for a really long time. Yeah, so. I was going to say, like, between this and Neon Demon, I'm, I'm convinced that she is an actual vampire. <laughs> she could be. She could be. I don't know her life. Wouldn't be, yeah. We meet the bullies, one of which is played by baby Seth Rogen, which I found adorable, uh, who are doing cocaine in the hallways. The principal walks right by them, practically looks at them as they're doing the cocaine. He's like, "Eh, it's the 80s. I'll I'll allow it. The main bully just, he snarls at Donnie in the hallway, and it's a very curious facial choice. It's kind of fun, (laughs) but at first, when they kind of interact, it's like, what the fuck? What emotion is that supposed to convey? I couldn't quite uh, figure it out. But then later when he develops into the bully, I'm like, okay, I guess that was an intimidating look. I don't know. I guess uh, there's something else there, I think, but this movie doesn't go into it. Jim Cunningham's going to be there again. So just... Jim Cunningham is getting introduced to Drew Barrymore and Noah Wiley. Drew Barrymore looking so damn pale in this movie. Good yeah. Lord. Yeah, it's a different look for her, but it's working for her. I, mm-hmm. I really like her aesthetic and her character in Donnie Darko. I especially like it when the camera's going to keep going and it's going to linger for a second on Drew Barrymore's face. And the look that she shoots over to this group of girls, Sparkle Motion, that are dancing or practicing their dance on the lawn it's just like this, oh, what fresh hell is this? Like, she's totally, like, just this scowling, eye-rolling, like, fuck my life and fuck this high school. And so it's so spectacular. I love that face. We also are going to see one of the, the teachers, the health teacher, or gym teacher, whatever she's supposed to be, 
a little unclear. I, th- I I always thought she was like a health teacher, but apparently she is also like the phys ed teacher, the gym teacher. I don't know. We never see any of them in a gym, so I wasn't too sure how that was rolling out. Yeah, but. it's it's ambiguous, but she's clutching this clipboard to her chest and also this magazine pamphlet for Jim Cunningham. And it's going to say attitudinal beliefs. And I was like, whatever the fuck that is. <laughs> So she's holding on to one of Jim Cunningham's little inspirational pamphlets or whatever. And so Jim Cunningham is there again. He's mentioned in the pamphlet. He's actually physically present on the school property, getting introduced to other teachers. For what purpose? We don't know, because this is not the day that he's motivationally speaking, necessarily. So he's just there. We get the English class. Donnie Darko goes to Drew Barrymore's class to talk about Graham Greene's The Destructors. Which I looked up that story online, and it is, you know, a 13-page short story. I would definitely agree that it is a 13-page short story that if you gave your typical high schooler, they would just say, oh, fuck this boring English shit. It, it short is like just the short story about a, a street gang in London uh, who... Typically, like the things they get up to are just okay. We're gonna see how many rides we can steal on the buses today. Like the kids, like range from like fifteen to nine years old. And then one day, this new kid named Trevor, who just wants to see the world burn, he's like, "No, I've got a new plan." You know that old guy who lives in that house that survived the Blitz? Yeah, he's gonna be gone for a week on holiday, and we're gonna tear his house out from the inside out. They're like, "Why?" We're gonna do it. And that's just enough for them. And so they all get to work and they're tearing out his house. And yeah, they find money in there. And Trevor just is a bitch who wants to watch the world burn because he burns all of the money. The former leader of the gang before Trevor came in with his cult personality asked Trevor, like, why do you want to do this? Why do you hate this old man? It's not about hate. It's not about love. It's about destruction and creation. And how they're the same thing. Yeah, the old man eventually returns home, and you feel bad for him because they trick him into wandering through his backyard so so he doesn't see what's happening inside the house. They lock him in. Well, they keep saying Lou. I assume that they mean, like, an outhouse that's in his backyard. They lock him inside of that thing while they continue to work on it. He's stuck in there for the better part of a day. And then the next day, a driver comes by and the boys have attached a rope to the car and the house so that when the car pulls away, it pulls out the last remaining support of the house and the whole thing just collapses. And the driver lets the old man out. He's like, my house, my house, dear God, my house. And the driver, like, it it just ends with the driver laughing because he's like, (laughs) you have to admit, that's pretty funny. There's a house there. No, there's not a house there. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Yeah, property destruction. Hilarious. So she's trying to get the kids to engage with this story, to talk about what it means. And Donnie, in typical Donnie Darko fashion, he gets this story because he's the one that's like, nah, man, it's just a story about kids who want to watch the world burn. She's like, yeah, you get me. And so (laughs) they're having this moment. And Drew Barrymore, once again, it's going to be this like, confusingly fantastic bitch to her students. The attitude she's throwing them, the shade she's throwing them, the things that she's saying. And Jenna Malone's gonna enter. Gretchen is gonna enter the scene. I I was put in the wrong English class. 
you look like you belong here. Well, no, she's in the wrong class. You need to send her to the correct one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it meant that like she's late because she was put in the wrong English class and so she came to this one late or what, but I just like Gretchen. Where should I sit? Sit next to the boy that you think is the cutest. Uh, how about I just take that empty seat of it? No, the cutest boy. Pick one. Just sit next to whichever boy you think is the cutest. And everybody sort of laughs or whatever. And she's like, let her choose. <laughs> like, no, silence all. Let her choose. <laughs> so Gemlin's awkwardly going to look over all of these guys that are looking back and sort of winking at her. And one girl, I liked that they included this one chick that was like, yeah, baby, come over and sit next to me. And her eyes land on Donnie Darko. Drew's like, yep, that's the one. And so instead of, because there's no blank seats around Donnie Darko, so Drew in this wonderful bitchy fashion is just going to be like, Joni, move. Makes <laughs> one student get up to go to the empty seat so that Jenna Malone can come sit next to Donnie Darko. I like to think that Joni had a similar thing where she joined the class and sat next to Donnie, so it's like just this endless cycle of girls who come in, try to sit next to Donnie, and then they have to move when the next girl shows up. Yeah, it's an interesting mindfuck game that Teacher Drew is playing here. I'm not sure to what end, but makes more sense, I guess, later in the director's cut. And then we're going to have Donnie driving around as a passenger because he doesn't drive. He can't drive until he's 21, court order. Cor he has correct, some... yeah. That's his backstory. He burned down a house and can't drive uh, and that's why he's on med meds because so he is the kid from the graham green destructor story i i know like it's funny to me that the story at first it presents it as if donnie is really insightful but if you think about it he's got an inside angle on the on the destructors like he gets the story because he was the kid from the destructors yeah and he just wanted to see the world burn so yeah he, he's got some past precedent but this car is almost going to run over a little old woman who's crossing the street that has the craziest hair. Her hair is just nuts. It's great. I would say even by the standards of 80s hair, this hair is too 80s. Yeah, it's part mullet, part Farrah Fawcett, part just scraggly hag. Like, it's pretty spectacular. And it's completely white. And she's checking the mail. Always checking the mail. The Yes, dad, dad nearly runs her over. She goes to check the mail, and Donnie gets out to check on her. She whispers something into his ear. And then he goes to therapy. So we get the introduction to the therapist. I wonder if anyone out there could tell us a little bit about the therapist. <laughs> oh, indeed. What do I say about this therapist? Just initial impressions. Um, She's shitty. Even in 1988... I don't know a lot of people doing hypnosis for an adolescent who, well, will, I think they say it in the original, but certainly later, whose main issue is uh, delusions and hallucinations. Let's hypnotize them. That's been shown to work. Yeah. When would they use hypnotherapy if anyone ever would? It's unusual in general. It's certainly more common probably in the 70s and 80s. And also this person's supposed to be a psychiatrist because she's prescribing him meds. And it's also super rare for psychiatrists to get trained in hypnosis. I mean, I wasn't doing this business in 1988, but there's like four different unusual things packaged all together. Curious. Yeah, it did seem weird that she was going right for the hypnotherapy thing. I'm like, what is supposed to come of that? 
other than maybe as a filmic device to get Donnie to say stream of conscious things to the camera <laughs> in a way, but it did seem like a curious type of thing to try to do. Yeah, it totally seemed like it was serving the purpose of the, the film more than anything else. And it looks interesting. Like, I get it. I see a lot of it. You know, you gotta have a couch, right? You gotta have people getting into sexual content, right? You gotta have some gnosis to facilitate that. Yeah, you have to have a reason for him to masturbate in front of his therapist. <laughs> which is precious, by the way, which I kind of, I forgot all about. But yeah, if his issues are, and this is, you know, more, when we come back to it, when we come back to the director's mm-hmm. cut, like, he clearly seems depressed, but also it's very clear early on that he starts referencing Frank and she starts piecing together, like, oh, other people aren't seeing Frank. Um, hypnosis has never been a treatment supporting folks who are having hallucinations or delusions. The medication, if it was actually a real thing, would be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's just a device to make it look interesting and to get inside of his head and see what's floating around in there. All right, cool. So yeah, hip- this weirdness of hypnosis confirmed. It's weird. It's weird that she's hypnotizing this boy. Thank you. And then we've got the Swayze infomercial. We're going to cut back to the school for a little while. We learn that Jim Cunningham's deal as a motivational speaker is all about overcoming fear, embracing the love and getting away from the fear. And getting into love. Yes. And that the gym health teacher played by Beth Grant is really, really into him and seems to, for school lessons, pretty much only show just motivational videos by Jim Cunningham. That's her curriculum. I agree that, like, this is a thing that's done. What I didn't agree with was the portrayal that she's, like, really enthusiastic about this, because I did see videos like this in health class or what have you back in the day in high school, but the teachers never did it enthusiastically. If they were putting on the video, it's because they're just having a day where they're like, oh, fuck off. I don't want to deal with these kids. Watch the screen. Watch yep. it. But on All a right, counterpoint, they probably Ugh. weren't Jim Cunningham's number one fan. And Kitty, Kitty is Jim Cunningham's number one fan. She oh. is a convert to his anti-fear ways. So it makes perfect sense that she is as enthusiastic as she is because she's getting to introduce Jim Cunningham to the children. And she really wants them to absorb his message in this evangelical kind of way. She also is very religious, so we get kind of both of these things, that she's constantly talking either about God or Jim Cunningham, sometimes in the same sentence. We also are going to get a series of Donnie Darko once again sleepwalking and the bunny telling him to do things. The first thing the bunny is going to tell him to do is to flood the school by taking a giant old school axe and just hitting that water water main. Which... This definitely has to be a pretty old school with really lousy plumbing or a lousy setup because the entire school is flooded by him hitting this one water main uh, is a little strange, but it happens. It does happen. And he's going to leave the axe embedded into the bronze skull of the squatting bulldog statue that's outside of the school. The orientation of the axe in the bulldog's skull does make you wonder, how did he do that? Because it was the axes hanging out over open air. So did I feel like Donnie had to do some sort of like superhero jump and landing. And in the middle of that, he swung the axe down into the skull before he you know, landed. Yeah, so there's two things that are weird about this the axe to the bronze skull. One, the height. 
which he would need to reach, and two, the strength he would need to actually get the axe to impale and stick into the bronze statue. And we're even going to have the officers that respond to the scene the next day questioning the physics of what's happening here. There's also some graffiti on the pavement underneath the bulldog reading, They Made Me Do It. In this version, that's going to just kind of seem a little bit odd, a little bit more dreamscapey that perhaps, yeah, weird shit is happening in this world. When we get into the director's cut, like this is a very deliberate scene for the director's cut interpretation of the movie. But until then, yeah, it just seems like a, a little bit of a weird sort of metaphysics thing that's happening here. We get the meeting of Gretchen and Donnie because the school has flooded. This allows them to walk home, and he's going to run into Gretchen, who is apparently a newer student in this school. And she's being bullied by, uh, well, a character named Seth, and a character I forget the name of who was played by Seth Rogen. And this scene is a, is a wonderful example of an actor not really having fine-tuned their instrument quite yet, because Seth Rogen has a line here, it's like one of a handful of lines he has in the entire movie, where he just says, I like your boobs. <laughs> now, if this were modern-day Seth Rogen, it'd be more like, Hey, I like your boobs. <laughs> Something along those lines. But we, we hadn't quite hit, like, you know, fine-tuned Seth Rogen quite yet in 2001. Neither are great options. Oh, huge slam on Seth Rogen out of nowhere. All right, put him in the oddly disliked character pile for London that includes Sarah Paulson. I don't dislike Seth Rogen. I don't care one way or the other about Seth Rogen, but... I'm still sorry about you disliking Sarah Paulson. She is a national treasure. How dare you? Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe one day. And then Donnie's going to save Gretchen, and they're going to continue to walk. He's going to learn that Gretchen moved here with her mother in a witness protection program type of thing, because they had to change their names. I do love that, that, that he's, she says, uh, yeah, my father, he had, uh, my stepfather had emotional problems. Oh, yeah, I've got emotional problems, too. What did he have? He stabbed my mother four times. Donnie's like, oh, okay, so this is not going to be a bonding moment. Donnie's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm more of a one-and-done kind of stabber, so, yeah, yeah, it's a little different. Yeah, it was really endearing, though, for Donnie to be like, oh, I have emotional problems, too. Maybe <laughs> this brings us closer. Like, what kind of does your dad have? And... No, okay, not the same. Gotcha. A little different there. After this heartwarming connection, Donnie's conclusionary thought is, hey, you want to go with me? And I, I love that I kind of, <laughs> when he said that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that is what it, it was like in high school, wasn't it? Like, do you want to go with me? Do you want to start dating me? Just like, let's put a stamp on this, like, already that we're boyfriend and girlfriend, you know, not based on whether or not we've gone on a date or if we're having whether a good time. Whether we like it's each like, other. Just, let's label this immediately. You want to go with me? That's what we call it here, going uh, with each other. You know, she's like, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. You're the least at least amount of an asshole that I've met so far. So, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, in the last three minutes that I've known you. <laughs> like, sure, because at first she's like, go where? And he's like, well, that's what uh, yeah. we call it here. And she's like, I think oh, she okay. was fucking with him a little sure. bit when she said that, too. Like, go with you. Go where? But, yeah, did you ever have that happen in high school where it was just like, hey, you want to you wanna go together? And then that was just that. In middle school, I was told that someone was my girlfriend. 
Oh, were you told by that girl or by somebody else? No, by her friends. Uh, she never okay. said anything, but I was told that, yeah, she's your girlfriend now. I'm like, wait, who is? Over there, her. I'm like, uh, what? When did that happen? They're like, no, she really likes you. You're, you're your boyfriend, girlfriend now. And eighth grade, eighth grade me just didn't question it. I'm like, well, okay, fine. <laughs> I don't think I ever really talked to her too much. Yeah, that's fair. That's about how it goes. That is like, that's <laughs> the complexity of a uh, teenage relationship, I think. Yeah, it didn't happen in high school. Like high school, there was a little bit, a tiny bit more involved, not a whole lot. But yeah, middle school was definitely the days where I had a friend that was like, so my friend likes you. Do you want to do you want to go with them? And I was like, well, who's your friend? And then she pointed them out and I was like, yeah, OK. And yeah. So I, I hadn't even met them yet. And I was like, yeah, I guess we I guess we go together now. So I guess our point is that as, as absurd as the do you want to go with me thing is, it is speaking to some truth there about how how romantic entanglements are done at that age. But yes, yeah, so they they're going together now. And then we're back in hypnotherapy, where the hypnotherapy backfires, and he just starts masturbating. <laughs> There's a really odd thing on the director's commentary with Kelly and Jake Gyllenhaal, where Jake says, "Oh yeah, I can't believe that they, you know, they CGI'd out, you know, my unit when I pulled that out." And I can't tell if he was joking or not. It was a he's weird on the commentary. I'll say that much. I do remember you mentioning, yeah, that he was a little weird on the commentary. He's a strange duck. Uh, like a great actor, but he's not an improv man. One of the things is because, yeah, she's like, what do you think of? Right. And he's like married with children. You think of being married or you think of having a family? He's like, no, I masturbate to Christina Applegate. I'm married with children is the takeaway. Michelle, has anyone master told you that they are going to masturbate to married with children? Uh, <laughs> during your therapy during a hypno any therapy session? <laughs> Is that a is that the p practice to say like I, this thing I will masturbate to this? That doesn't come up super often. Well, Christina Applegate doesn't come up often, you know, in my timeline of giving therapy. Not often enough. But she's hot. I'm into it. <laughs> I was 12 in 1988, so I can only speak to the psychological hotness of Christina Applegate. Mm -hmm. I endorse that, but no, that specific topic is not mm -hmm. coming up. <laughs> Although, what, what people masturbate to sometimes does come up in session in general. What about their family? Do they <laughs> masturbate to their family? Well, Married with Children was a show, for those of you who don't know, and Christina Applegate was on it, and so apparently Donnie Darker used to watch this. And If, if you don't know what we're talking about, I, right now I have the picture in my head of her from this time in like a little spandex miniskirt and a half shirt with like giant bleach blonde hair and I'm digging it. She yeah. was the hypersexualized daughter in this family and she was kind of really endearing in it. She was supposed to be really, really dumb, but hot. Hypnotherapy backfires. And then more time travel. We're gonna get back go back and forth between just hypnotherapy and the bunny telling him to do things. But this time it's actually Donnie Darko seeking out ER's Noah Wiley. <laughs> to ask about time travel, <laughs> as one does. And Noah Wiley is going to tell him about Stephen Hawking. He's going to tell him about Einstein. He's not going to tell him about Leonard Susskind. And at that point, he's also going to tell him about a woman named Roberta Sparrow, who wrote a book on time travel. 
Surprise, we've heard Roberta Sparrow's name before. The crazy old woman. She's Grandma Death. As they call her, we almost ran her over earlier in the movie. Um, but this time travel conversation is is curious here. We learn a little bit about the possibility of time travel as a thing in the natural universe, that it's theoretically possible. So we do get a little sort of introduction of an idea of time travel, but it's not going to become a huge thing as much in this original cut, just kind of a possibility of maybe a seed of what's happening here. At some point, Noah Wiley also is like, I have to stop this conversation or else I could get fired. I think that comes later, that conversation, because we have two of them, much like the Patrick Swayze help video scenes. We have two scenes of Noah Wiley talking to Donnie, uh, the first of which is he gives him the book. And then later in the movie, after Donnie has begun to, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but after Donnie has begun to see the spears, uh, the spears coming out of people, showing us their predetermined paths, he says, like, but if everything uh, works under God's plan, then that's just your path. And Noah Wiley just has to, like, I, I have to stop, I have to stop this conversation. Why? I could lose my job. Uh, which I always inferred that he's saying, uh, this is a religious school. And if I am going to have an honest conversation with you, that would mean me divulging that I am an atheist or agnostic or what have you, that I do not believe in God. Okay, yeah, I forgot that they were at a religious school because at first I was trying to, like, work in the opposite. I'm like, well, you're not going to get fired if you talk about a divine or godly topic in a public school. It's not great if you're a science teacher talking about the predestination of God. That's, that's a little ascientific, but at the same time, probably not going to get fired for it. But yeah, you're right if they're at a religious school and he's kind of saying, yeah, well, that, that view is a little bit non-scientific. Okay, I get you. Yeah, that conversation is going to come back up in terms of the different interpretations of the two movies, so we'll save it. And he is going to, uh, or Donnie is going to at some point reveal to his therapist around this time about this Robert, Roberta Sparrow and time travel connection that she is Grandma Death and that she whispered to him something on the street. And what did she whisper to him on the street? Everyone dies alone. Yeah. And therapist is like, how does that make you feel, Donnie? <laughs> He's like, not great, actually. Not not too hot. Uh. <laughs> not a fan. And this is when Frank comes up, his, his bunny rabbit friend, Frank, that he does things that Frank wants him to because Frank's his friend. And without Frank, he'd be alone. I do love that when he first mentions Frank, it's in the context of, I made a new friend. His therapist immediately asked him, real or imaginary? <laughs> Oh, how often has this come up? How many imaginary friends has Donnie been making in his set during these sessions? That is an interesting question. We get another reference to Jim Cunningham. So once again, we're keeping Cunningham woven through this narrative when Donnie's mother is talking to another one of her friends. And this friend is also enamored with Jim Cunningham. So Donnie's mother should meet him. She can't believe he's single. <laughs> and then Donnie starts seeing rainbow portals. Yes, the rainbow portals during a football game featuring the Washington. Yeah, they were called that then too, football team. And yeah, these portals are just liquid, weird matrices that come out of the people's chests to let others know the or let Donnie know their predetermined path so he can see where they're about to go what they're about to do 
as if they are stuck on some sort of rail system. There's going to be little sort of cool sound effects of things. We're going to hear a plane kind of taking off overhead at one point and people look up and it's not confirmed whether they can see a plane or not, but it almost seems a little bit like this might be the plane that's somehow flying over the sound of the plane that crashed mm. into his bedroom. And so it's this kind of weird, yeah, pieces of things are happening, but they're happening at different times. Donnie's going to try to kiss Gretchen and Gretchen's all like, nah, though, I want our first kiss to be at a moment where the world feels beautiful. And right now there is like a cock block in a red tracksuit just staring at us from across the street. Yep. Yeah, just a weird fat guy and a, and a fat uh, red tracksuit. I wonder if we'll see him again and if his purpose is stupid and pointless. We don't see him again, though, do we? We see him later on at the party. Really? Yeah. Huh. In one of his commentaries, Richard Kelly reveals that this guy is an agent of the FAA who has been tasked to watch Donnie. Which... Oh, okay. Why? Yeah, did not clock that at all. What's the point of that? Because he knows about the mysterious aircraft, I guess. I don't know. Well, I mean, if if we get into the second one, yeah, it makes a bit more sense. But yeah, I did not clock that in this first one. But you don't need to, I guess, if there's just no. a cock block in a red tracksuit. It's just, yeah. you know, he got cock blocked by a dude in a red tracksuit. <laughs> Not the time yet to kiss your going with girlfriend. Mm -hmm. At some point, there's going to be a teen angst fest at the Cunningham Day. Jim Cunningham is going to come and motivationally speak to the students. He doesn't really have very good advice. People are asking him different questions. And if it doesn't have an answer of love or fear, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he just kind of brushes it off. Yeah, at one point, a kid asked him, like, what should I do with my life? Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one. Next. So Donnie is going to stand up. It's such a teenager fuck the man thing where he like <laughs> kind of gets up and starts to try to answer instead because he knows better, better ways. And he's like, you're the fucking Antichrist. I remember when I first saw this movie, that was legit shocking to me because I was still young enough to like really remember what it was like to be in a, a school like rally or like pep talk kind of setting like this. So the idea of standing at the microphone with the entire school watching and saying amplified, I think you're the fucking antichrist, that was legit shocking to 18-year-old me. Watching it as an adult, uh, it's just it's just funny to me, personally, <laughs> but yeah. The bunny comes back. The bunny is going to show up in the movie theater where they go yes. to watch They go to Evil see Dead. Evil Dead and... One behind-the-scenes fact I love about this is that they originally were supposed to be watching Chud. Yeah. But in trying to clear it, no one could figure out who owned the rights to Chud. I know, that captivated me right there. I was like, I want to go on the most mystery trek deep dive to try to find out who owns the rights to Chud. Because for all we know, it is, like Don's Plum, the McDonald's Happy Meal guy. Who knows? And so while they're watching this, the bunny's going to appear, and they're going to have this interaction. Why do you wear that stupid bunny suit? Why do you wear that stupid man suit? Like, Whoa, edgy. Sick burn, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, though, is that Frank actually is wearing a literal bunny suit, because Jake Gyllenhaal's all like, take it off. And he does. Mm -hmm. And it's just Removes James it. Duvall. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's just James, just James Duvall. He's got a eye injury of some sort. Like, what happened to your eye? We don't get an answer. Why is your name Frank? It was the name of my father and his father before me. And the way that he phrased that was really interesting to me. Because normally when you say something like that, you say, you know, this, you know, th this land belonged to my father and his father before him. You wouldn't say his father before me. So the weird way that they're altering this phrase to me, like, I feel like is some sort of hint of the cyclical nature of time as it's given in this movie. Or that's just a theory I have because it's the one thing that Richard Kelly has not tried to explain in over, overdone detail in his commentaries to this movie. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't pick that up, but that's kind of cool. I do like Frank. Frank is a chill little bunny dude. <laughs> and Frank's like, hey, you know that Jim Cunningham dude? You know his house where you found the wallet? Like, you know where he lives. You should burn that, that motherfucking place to the ground. You do not need no water. Let that motherfucker burn. Burn, motherfucker, burn. And Donnie's like, wait, you want me to burn something to the ground? Because this is what Donnie lives for. So he fucking <laughs> goes like... and he burns that place to the ground. He's like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, he knows how to burn a house down. Donnie's a pro at this. So he goes and he burns some stuff to the ground. They're going to find out the next day when the firefighters go to try to put this out that, uh, let's see, Patrick, I want to say Patrick's face. Jim Cunningham is a cultivator of the fine art of oh. child pornographic images that he keeps <laughs> in what the movie calls a quote-unquote kitty porn dungeon i believe the the terminology that he used there kind of seemed like the charges were just that he had all of these images and were part of some sort of like child porn image ring but the dungeon part would imply that he actually physically participates as well neither here nor there but it is going to recontextualize this odd relationship that he seems to have always lingering about the school, particularly the dance troupe, Sparkle Motion. Because I did skip over that talent show. There will be a talent show at the school, and different people are performing different things. But that little dance troupe, they get up to perform their dance. And leading into it, Patrick Swayze is the announcer, Jim Cunningham's the announcer, and he's like, and now the moment you've all been waiting for, sparkle motion. And you're like, wait, is that true? Has everybody in this audience been waiting for this mediocre dance from... Or have just you been waiting <laughs> for it? Have just been you? But... At the same time, because at first I was like, oh, obviously he's just been waiting for it. But the rest of the crowd seems to get into Sparkle Motion in a way that they haven't the other performances. So I feel it's always been a confusing thing to me. It's like, is, are they supposed to actually have this huge support of the crowd? Or is it just because a lot of their parents are in the crowd? I don't know. I, uh, I, I don't know. It's all like the, the dance itself is cut together like around the bits of donnie you know setting the house on fire and him returning to the theater which he gets back when he got back to the theater gretchen was still asleep and nothing against gretchen but if i take a, a date to see evil dead and they sleep through it that's a deal breaker for me right there like how can you sleep through the evil dead shame on you uh sometimes people are just tired you know she gretchen must have had a hell of a day uh they don't even stick around for the double feature which was the last temptation of christ yeah <laughs> 
That's the one you should sleep through, probably. That's an odd double billing. Evil Dead and the Last Temptation of Christ. Like, I mean, there's a certain type of resurrection theme. <laughs> and I do know that Kelly has mentioned before that one of the reasons that he double billed it with The Temptation of Christ is because of a head nod to the way that Temptation of Christ also plays with this idea of the cul-de-sac of time in its narrative in terms of mm-hmm. there's like a time of imagining, I guess, what could have been or would have been if certain events transpassed. That basically, yeah, was what I was thinking too. Like, oh, well, that's what, yeah, that's clearly what Donnie goes through in this movie. The, the whole movie is just uh, Donnie's the last temptation of Donnie. As he sees the future, he's like, yeah, I could leave or I could just let this ha- this thing fall on me and my family gets to live later on. Yeah, so it's a, it's a little head nod there from Kelly. But anyway, there's a dance, there's spark emotion, and the next day the house burns, they find the kitty porn dungeon, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal is like laughing as the world burns, he's like, ha, dad played golf with that guy, ha 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 ha. Yeah, Drew Barrymore gets fired for her methods as a teacher. She seems shocked by this. I wasn't. What exactly about my methods do you find questionable? And they don't say it, but I imagine one of them can be, well, you having girls choose where to sit based on what the cutest boy is is definitely a little unorthodox. And so we kind of get the sense that Drew Barrymore's character and Noah Wiley's character are both these two very liberal individuals that are trying to teach at this, yeah, religious conservative school. And so that's the methods that they're talking about because they're trying to get, you know, all of her works banned and stuff. But it really just comes across as like, well, you are a crazy bitch to your students. So maybe, (laughs) maybe. Could be that, yeah. Kitty is going to show up at the Darko house because that stunning display at the high school talent show has caught the attention of some L.A. scouts and have invited Sparkle Motion to participate in some sort of dance thing out in L.A. Well, the Star Search, which was, I vaguely remember Star Search from when I was a kid. It was like a, kind of like an American Idol type of show. There weren't any, like, catty judges or anything like that. They would just do their thing. Ed McMahon would come out and, you know, in between delivering the publisher clearinghouse, you know, checks, he would say, All right, what did our judges think of this amazing act? And... They would get like a rank of one to four stars and it would like, you know, it could be two and a half stars, three and a half stars, one star, who knows. But that was basically what it was. It was a talent search show. Fair enough. The fact that there's a talent scout from L.A. at this small Virginia school, uh, that's a little bit of a stretch for me, but I'll allow it. it. It moves the plot along. This is also the moment where you're reminded, oh, yeah, they're supposed to be in Virginia. The license plates all do say Virginia, except for this entire thing is filmed in California. And so if you don't notice certain details that point to Virginia, I always, for the longest time, just assumed that Donnie Darko took place in California because I recognized a lot of the locations that they shot at. So I was like, oh, yeah. Dr. Vaughn, in your opinion, does the location portrayed in Donnie Darko resemble that of Virginia? It seems plausible to me. Oh, yeah. I forgot that you did your... Was it your residency in Virginia or your grad school in Virginia? Uh, my postdoc and then my first job after postdoc. So four years of Virginia in kind of central Virginia. Yeah, it kind of gave me, you know, especially like... Um, could be... That's some place that could be in like Richmond and stuff where I lived. Yeah, like in the suburbs. 
Okay, so like the the trees and the hills. Were there a lot of hills in Virginia that Donnie kind of walks up and falls asleep on? Uh, I'm trying to think. I think that's the part like when you see, yeah, not usually that hilly except for when you get over by Charlottesville. There's actually uh, turns into mountains, Blue Ridge okay. mountains. So yeah, depending on where they are, that's plausible. And the trees looked like they were okay and stuff. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah, I just recognize so many of those these locations from other movies that I know take place in California, and then I've also been to some of those locations in California, especially that hill shot where he sort of wakes up at the very beginning. That to me, I was like, oh, I know exactly where that is. Yeah, it's always distracting to me to try to remember that this takes place in Virginia, but it's good to know that it can pass as Virginia. Yeah, there was a lot of talk in the commentary of how they were cropping out palm trees, uh, some of which were like were at the school they were filming at. There were palm trees like just in the front yard of the place, and they had to be very careful about the shots they got out of the school to avoid that. Fair enough. And so they're in Virginia, and they need to go out to L.A., except for Kitty can't chaperone them this time because as Jim Cunningham's number one fangirl, she needs to be in charge of his save Jim Cunningham defense fund or something and be at his arraignment. In this woman's world, her priorities are getting her girl onto, getting her daughter, her own daughter's dance troupe onto a nationally televised talent search show. That comes second to defending an accused child molester. And she's wearing this shirt in this scene that says, like, God is awesome. So once again, she's going to be the one that's been crusading throughout the entire movie against perversion and immorality filtering into the curriculum at school. She's going to be criticizing Donnie's parents, particularly his mother, for not instilling the sentiments of a godly life into their son who keeps insulting her at every turn and defying authority figures yet here she is right not able to accept the idea that jim cunningham might have been the worst purveyor of immorality of them all so instead she's standing up for him in the defense like she won't believe those lies i was just gonna say like she it's like he's her own personal jc and then I realized, wait, Jim Cunningham, like, he is her own personal oh, JC. Oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> but she, so she is telling uh, President Roslin that, you know, stands the fist, that she's got to, she has to be the one to chaperone the girls uh, to the talent show. And Mrs. Darko's daughter is on the, the dance squad, so it makes sense. And she doesn't really know if she should, you know, be the one to do this. And this is really upsetting to Kitty. And she worries that she might not get the importance of this and has to let her know. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. And I say this all the time to people. But I usually it's an inverse. I'm always like, I appreciate your commitment to sparkle motion and... Most people I say this to have no idea what that means, but it's fine. <laughs> That's kind of how most conversations with you go, though. Yeah. It's also she great that this, Kitty's like, I, I would, don't know what it means, but whatever. You'd be the last one I'd ask, but like, I need you to do this for our girls. And Zdarka's <laughs> like, yeah, that's a great pitch. Thanks. 
but it's not a great weekend because you know her husband's in New York and she's oh, got this son who is sleepwalking and hallucinating imaginary rabbit friends and trying to burn down properties. So not the greatest weekend. Like a daughter might over Dukakis. I mean, we are on critical status here, right? So she she does decide to go. So that leaves Donnie and his sister alone in the house, or Maggie Gyllenhaal's sister, in the house for the weekend. Donnie is going to interact with Drew Barrymore's character one more time before her fired ass uh, leaves. Yeah. Stumbles out of the school, yeah. And she is going to have cellar door written on the chalkboard, and he's going to be all, what's that? She's like, one linguist said once that it was the most beautiful phrase. Of all the combinations of all words in the English language, there was none more beautiful, more perfect than cellar door. And so that's going to be a little implanted clue there for Donnie that's going to come back around. And then she's going to take her box's stuff and leave including the classroom, uh, like the giant American flag with <laughs> I thought her. that was so strange, but I don't know, in a way that's like a fuck you to the school too. It's like, yeah, I'm taking your flag. But why? Right? <laughs> like, why do you want to like, like... You don't get a, you don't get America, man. I get America and I'm taking America with me. And I love that she stumbles out the door. And when I first saw that, uh, rewatching that, I thought for a second, I wonder if that was like a mistake and like they only had 28 days to film and it was drew's last day on set and like, they hadn't didn't have time to redo it but apparently that really that was something drew said like i want to do this i want to stumble through the door and kelly's just like you are the the reason this movie's happening so yeah go for it you do you you stumble through that door with your american flag i don't know i like i like to think that you know she's got like a fifth of scotch or something in that box too she's been kicking back on her last day just like fuck the world go go sell her door there we go. That's great. Bye, my assholes. I'm taking the flag. Yeah, still a really weird choice. Donnie Darko reveals to his therapist that he has been doing all of these things around town because Frank the Bunny told him to. Meanwhile, there's going to be a Halloween party at his house because his, neither of his parents are there, so party is thrown because it's the late 1980s. Everybody comes dressed as stuff. Maggie Gyllenhaal pops in and asks, where's my boyfriend, Frank? And people are like, ah, oh, he's out getting some beers. And she's like, okay, fine. We'll wait for his ass to come back. It's very, it's very quick when she does it too. You don't have much time to register that she asked where Frank is. She just says, where's Frank at? I don't think she even says my boyfriend, Frank. She just says, where's Frank at? Like, oh, there, he's on a beer run. Oh, okay. Uh, Gretchen has shown up. Uh, her mother is missing. She's terrified. And need to come to a safe place. Yeah, because the house is trashed and the violent, psychotic stepfather probably showed up and killed her mom. And so she's like, I, I really need some escapist sex right now. <laughs> as, as you do, there's nothing more than a, than a young teenage girl wants more than a, in a time of crisis than sloppy, unprotected sex. Exactly. Followed by the incumbent need to go visit grandma death out on her property <laughs> so they apparently bang in donnie's parents bedroom or wherever they are and then they go out to see grandma death in an et bike riding homage that now looks more like stranger things than et because there's a bunch of them get up to roberta sparrow she's not there i don't know where in the world this woman is if she's not at home in 
There's there. Yeah. In any version of this film, that's never addressed. Like what, where she is actually supposed to be. Nope. So instead he realizes like, wait, cellar door, cellar door's the key. We should try the cellar door. And so they go and they try the cellar door and they get down there. And the bullies reenacting Graham Greene's The Destructors from earlier have decided to break into this elderly person's house to rob them and take their stuff because they were the ones that misinterpreted the story as not about making the world burn, but about wanting to steal their stuff. And so they're kind of participating in this weird patched together narrative and catch Gretchen and Donnie in the cellar, pull them out onto the road. There's knives involved in some like sort of 1950s style showdown. It's very rebel without a cause. They've got pantyhose on their faces, so they're not picked up by the security cameras that this woman would no doubt have in her house. Yeah, exactly. In 1988, (laughs) this house out in the middle of the road, all alone. I don't know. Yeah, but they decided to cover their faces to go and break into her basement. Gretchen gets thrown to the ground, and a series of events are going to happen where suddenly Roberta Sparrow is there, and she's out checking the mail. This time, there is the letter there that Donnie did try to mail to her earlier, so she's going to, like, retrieve the mail, and a car comes by. Does he do that in the theatrical cut? Does he write her the letter in the theatrical cut, or is that just the director's cut? He does write her the letter in the theatrical cut. Oh, okay. They don't show them, like, going to the house to deliver it, but he does write her a letter. Oh, okay. The versions of this movie are starting to blend together, man. It's freaking me out. It's all collapsing. The car swerves to avoid Roberta, because cars constantly have to swerve to avoid Roberta, and just plows right over Gretchen's prone body instead. The driver gets out, and who is it? Who's driving the car? First, there's a clown on the passenger side who says, Frank, what did you do? And then the driver opens up. And it's Frank without the mask on. Like, he's about to have the mask on. Like, he has the suits and he has the mask. He's he like, both eyes. what the hell were you guys doing in the middle of the road here? And Donnie responds to this as one only could respond, which is to shoot Frank in the eye. No exchange of words. No questioning of what he's doing or thinking about. It, just like, oh, hi. Boom. Well, he just killed the girl he's going with, so it's a rage response, perhaps. And also a moment of... Oh, I almost said the safe word. Almost a moment of (laughs) understanding the nature of time collapses, where he's like, I gotta do this, though. Like, Frank's one-eyed and dead, generally, and I need to do this. And then... Yeah, he just realizes that there's this black hole smoke stuff happening all around him. The world seems to be closing in, both opening up and collapsing at the same time. And there's only one solution to this. He's got to go back. He's hearing, you know, Noah Wiley's voice in his head, like, this is how you, you know, this is how time travel can work. This is, you need the vessel. So blah, 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 blah. Eventually he's like, you know what? That's right. I got to do it. He takes... Gretchen's, I, I get that feeling like he took Gretchen's body with him in the car back up to the top of that hill where he started the movie looking out and he can see some sort of portal or like spinning cloud formation, you know, above his house. He can see the plane moving. He's like, yep, I know what I have to do. And then we kind of get scenes of the movie playing in reverse much faster, faster, further back, further back until finally we get to his house 
and he's just back in his bed, just kind of laughing like, <laughs> plane falls on him. And the next morning, the parents are out there, and Gretchen uh, happens to be going by and rides up on her bicycle. She asks this little blonde kid who's standing there watching everything, like, what's going on? He got smushed by a jet engine. It's really sad. Like, and the fact that this kid is showing compassion is the one unbelievable thing about the movie for me. I'm like, no, you're 10 years old. You don't know what empathy is. You're an nihilistic little bastard. Give me a break. Fair enough. And she seems to recognize vaguely this face, even when the kid asks, like, did you know him? And she's like, nah, nah, man, I didn't know him. But she kind of recognizes Donnie's mother a little bit, goes to wave. Donnie's mother sort of waves back like they might recognize each other. Mm -hmm. Of course, we also get the really amazing Mad World cover throughout the end of this as well. Mad World. People just seem to be reflecting on nihilistic depression. And it's it's so great because you have the therapist is like startled like, I feel like something's off here that I did something. I can't quite tell. We have Drew and Noah, who apparently, you know, they've been sleeping together this entire time because we see them in bed together. We had Jim Cunningham waking up, like, in a fright, and I absolutely love that. Like, in his, when he's alone, he is constantly terrified. That's not quite the comeuppance you want for this character, but it does make sense. And we have a brief shot of the bunny mask drawings, the sketches, and we see Frank down there. He looks kind of troubled briefly touches his right eye like something's bugging him a little bit and yeah all all the the wonderful things and like the fact that all these characters have they they feel like something's off it, it is a really nice element that i appreciate it reminds me of something like uh like from run little run if you've ever seen that that's a movie where like we see a character's day three times over and it goes wrong the first time we rewind and she seems to remember things that happened that, like, make it easier for her. Like, she, in the first time around, like, Lola has a gun that she's threatening someone with, and it, she fucks up because the safety is on. And then the second time around, she has a gun. She's threatening someone else with it. It's a slightly different situation. But you can see her, like, look at the gun and, like, oh, right, turn off the safety. Or you can also compare it to something like uh, Hinsley in The Matrix. Earlier in that film, you have Trinity talking to Neo at the nightclub, and she says, it's something that's been bugging you like an itch on the back of your head. And he is often like rubbing the back of his head earlier in the movie. It's like, yeah, okay. Nice, like little, little hints from the, the other side that something is amiss. Yeah, it's a really amazing cinematic sequence. It's very effective in terms mm-hmm. of both effective, but then also affect in terms of this emotion that really does filter in here, particularly because the because linguist of the laying out choice. the laws over here. Yeah. Cellar door, man, cellar door. (laughs) Yeah, there's going to be this sort of conclusion that feels sad in some way because our main character that we've been following the journey has died, smushed by a plane. We're not entirely sure what has been real, what hasn't, because once he's smushed by the plane, time rewinds to October 2nd, 1988. So it does create this space in which the last 28 days that we witnessed may or may not have happened in some capacity. And so there's a lot of potential takeaways in this original cut narrative. What was your initial takeaway when you first watched this film? When I first saw this, my thought was, I remember like just thinking to myself a lot at the very end, like he chose to go back. He chose to go back. Like this 
going back, this self-sacrifice move is a very like conscious choice that Donnie makes and something he just says, like, I have to give myself up for the greater good of, of those I love, of those who are important to me. To me, it was like an anti-ego moment where he's like, I can continue on and I can keep going or knowing what I know and my new understanding of time travel that I've, you know, from what I've been able to see and from my interactions with Frank, I know how to go back and fix this. And I just remember thinking like making that choice is like a very beautiful thing. Um, you can also say that, you know, this is a kid who's really struggling with, with, you know, mental issues. And you could look at that. And I have like kind of when I was rewatching, I was thinking about this, that maybe none of this is really happening. Anything past that first day is just all a dream this guy is having and looking into his future. Like maybe he's like in a little bit of foresight somehow, or maybe he's just like just imagining what could happen in the future. If he looked at himself, you know, inwardly and not, you know, to had no empathy for the world. I'm kind of just spitballing here a little mm-hmm. bit, but you know, maybe he has thought a lot about, you know, his time when he burned down a house just to watch something burn. And he, th- had thought a lot about the short story that they, he was assigned the destructors and was just thinking like, yeah, yeah, that that's me. Just, just watch the world burn. Don't really worry about it too much. And then by the end of it, he's learned that, seen that lesson and just said, on the other hand, maybe I should do what I can to prevent something from happening. Yeah. And I, I don't know to what extent he does or doesn't prevent things in the first one, because I've always liked the interpretation, the mental illness interpretation of this film, with maybe a little bit of metaphysical tinges coming in around the edges. Mm-hmm. And so I, there is an ambiguity to this, and I, I'll save my interpretation to after we talk about the director's cut a little bit because a lot of it filters into that because it's now all mixed up together but yeah there isn't a definitive conclusion to be drawn from the first one and people tend to really like that that those who are drawn to this as a kind of cult film like that enigmatic quality they like that there's multiple kind of almost dreamscape type of interpretations that can be derived from this yeah and This was a very curious film when it first came out in the early 2000s. There weren't a lot of films like it. It was already an interesting kind of hard sell. It didn't hit very many theaters. I think just a couple of them. I have to assume I was just very fortunate that this relatively new independent theater in Columbia, Missouri happened to be playing this movie. Yeah, and a big thing about why this didn't get as much of a theatrical release or any sort of marketing really and it had to be one of those word of mouth movies for a little while is that this film came out a month after September 11th 2001 and so when you have all this marketing of this movie that hey there's this kid that is trying to navigate a world in which pieces of planes are falling onto his house and more plane crashes may be imminent the investors in the production companies were like, yeah, we don't really want to touch this one. I'm pretty sure the trailer doesn't mention the jet engine or show any scenes in the plane whatsoever. Talk about that at all. This movie did, it's another one that did much better on its VHS and DVD release than it did in theaters. 
And as it slowly gained this cult following in the early 2000s, which makes sense that it did because it has a very certain millennial sensibility. It's a pretentious form of nihilism. Yeah. There is certainly a nihilism holdover from the Gen X. The millennials certainly do not have a sole claim to existentialist narratives. <laughs> yeah, there's something a little bit more nihilist in the Gen X media, and then the millennials kind of tinge more towards an existential oddity. Mm -hmm. they, they like things that are a little dreamscapey, odd, and depressingly existential and so you've got this gen x director making something for you know a millennial audience and it just kind of worked really well and spoke to them and thus kelly was offered a director's cut option they said hey kelly you want to fuck up this film he said you know what i do i really really do i really want to go destructors on my own movie and tear it up from the inside out and we won't go through, like, every single scene that's just added, because that would, yeah, run too long. And a lot of them aren't necessary to either narrative. They're just little kind of world-building things, like character moments here and there. And not all of them, I think, are bad. There are some scenes in there that I... There's a really cute scene between Donnie and his dad, where Donnie's like, Dad, I'm sorry that I'm crazy. And his dad's like, you're not crazy. The rest of the world's crazy. Relax. It's okay. And they just have a laugh on him, like, oh, that's a that's a sweet moment between Donnie and his dad. That's kind of cool. Yes, but why does his dad say that Donnie's not crazy in the director's cut? Oh, I forget. What why is, is Donnie not crazy? Well, because Donnie's not crazy at all. Because mental illness actually doesn't factor in. He is, in fact, the chosen one in this superhero narrative. Oh, I, th I thought you meant, like, the, the reason his dad gives him that he is not... Oh, no, that's the reason, because his dad is one of the manipulated living that are trying to convince him to... Oh, okay, well, then I take back what I said about that scene, because that's so painfully on the nose that it's ridiculous. What really bugged me about the director's cuts were the interstitial, you know, text moments that we get that are meant to be... Uh, passages from Robert, uh, you know, Grandma Death's book, The Philosophy of Time Travel, that are put up on the screen. And I wouldn't have a problem with it, but it's just done so clumsily. It is really awkward. So what's going to happen with the director's cut is that in the original one, we have an, a little indie movie about mental illness with the possibilities of metaphysical time travel. And it's weird and it's cool. In the director's cut, we get a much more definitive ish view on what's happening here and that is actually a very hard sci-fi story well not hard sci-fi because hard by traditional definitions means that like the science really needs to work and it doesn't here anyway so we get this sci-fi film in the second one in which there's the the primary universe and occasionally with time travel a tangent universe just pops up tangent universes pop up when something called the artifact manages to find some sort of wormhole through space and creating this tangent universe. Now, these tangent universes are unstable, having a maximum of about seven weeks possibly to remain stable. And so as this tangent universe is trying to collapse in on itself, unless the chosen one, the receptacle, or I can't, well, what's the name of the, the people that are chosen? Michelle, do you know? I think it's the receiver. 
Yes, I believe you're correct. That sounds right. Because I was like, the receptacle doesn't sound quite right. So yes, I think it's the receiver. So the receiver is going to be this chosen one. And nobody really knows why the receiver's chosen, but they are selected as the one that might be able to somehow get the artifact back to the main universe. And... If they don't, the tangent universe is going to collapse and the main universe is going to collapse with it. So this occurred to me yesterday. I think there's an opportunity to intersect the sci-fi with the mental health. Like, is is Donnie just mentally ill? And I think, it. you know, what if it's a universe in which this is real and the time travel and the selection of uh, who is the receiver? Who's going to be the perfect receiver? It's going to be someone, (laughs) it's going to be an adolescent man with a predisposition to paranoid schizophrenia, which Mm -hmm. is the diagnosis he receives in the director's cut, who would be receptive to those messages and those ideas. Maybe both. Yeah, no, I actually, my favorite interpretation of this when it comes to a potential sci-fi element, I just don't think we need the director's cut in order to do this is that there might be something quasi-metaphysical happening with time travel, and it's cool to think that maybe schizophrenia, not actually a mental illness, but actually happening, right? So that people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia are actually just people who are cued in to some sort of weird dreamlike conspiracy of time. So like, yeah, I would take that a step further and say like, maybe schizophrenia is its own superpower, which is kind of cool. I do have a friend who loves the this movie because of the schizophrenia diagnosis with schizophrenia because he himself went through a very long period of time of being unmedicated and untreated for schizophrenia and then later got on meds that really worked for him and watched this movie and was like this is my favorite movie this was my experience like this is what it feels like to live with schizophrenia is to have these yeah things that tell you to do things and are your friends and whatever And that's what I was going to resonate with. Like, that is certainly, and again, it's usually white men about in this average bracket that are the highest risk. It is also consistent with what I've seen in practice. Mm -hmm. And I might have a family member who, not super unlike Donnie's symptoms, some some significant overlap and significant overlap in diagnosis. And just about in this time, just about in the the setting of the age of the film, like Mm -hmm. in the late 80s as well. That totally tracks. So schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia would seemingly be the best diagnosis for Donnie, would you say? Yeah. That's always been like the the mental health professionals who I know who use this film to teach about symptoms. I mean, I've used it. I've used clips from it before, mm-hmm. certainly. But I can't remember when, when that was first presented to me as an option. Like if someone mm-hmm. did that for me in my training, because I was in graduate school when this came out. But I like I saw this when I was like the first year I saw clients. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, what is this? I think I know what this is. But I'd never seen the director's cut to have it confirmed. But it's a pretty common pick for showing symptoms because it's very consistent and on book. Yeah, I'm trying to think of anything that's not consistent. Well, you know, besides the, like, all these things, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, there is some things that somewhat make sense in a linear arc and the, the uh, delusions and hallucinations are internally consistent to... Uh, the person watching the film, which is not usually the case. Usually Mm -hmm. they don't make logical sense and fit together. They're very internally inconsistent. But that doesn't work really well for cinema, so. Fair enough. What about the fear of being alone? Is that 
something that's augmented with schizophrenia or is that just part of the existential human narrative that we get here? I think that's totally consistent. Well, there is a, a lot of social isolation in folks who happen to have these kinds of symptoms because again, mm-hmm. they're kind of in their own um, world. They're in their own world mentally. It's kind of which came first, the chicken or the egg, or do they mm-hmm. coexist? But there's a lot of isolation and there's a lot of, I mean, one of the, one of the theories that doesn't have any support is that like schizophrenia was like a reaction to being a, a socially outcast and that they folks with schizophrenia need like social skills training mm-hmm. because they don't know how to operate in the world and respond to others. And you can see that in Donnie's like facial expressions. He starts the the, the inappropriate affect, we call it. Mm-hmm. So he starts throughout the movie, looks more and more like somebody developing schizophrenia, like it really hitting too. He gets a little bit more and more disheveled and just like sometimes very flat in the face. And that's classic. That that definitely happens. Yeah, there's little manic smiles and whatnot. How do you know in what way... Well, first of all, I guess, are daytime hallucinations, is that a phrase? No, it's just hallucinations. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I hadn't either. And I was like, what? Because like, isn't a hallucination during the day the same one at night? And if you're sleeping, then it's not a hallucination. Like, what is this day hallucination business? So what, in your experience, generally is the type of hallucinations experienced by people with schizophrenia? Are they generally visual, auditory? Do they take the shape of demonic bunnies? (laughs) Auditory is actually the most common by far. So even though, like even in like A Beautiful Mind where they're showing everything visual and it's based on a real story, he never had visual hallucinations. They were always auditory. It just doesn't show, it isn't as interesting on screen. So yeah, auditory is by far, I think it's like 70%. And then I think the next most common is visual. So that certainly can kind of come up. And the idea that usually, you know, when they assign him in the director's cut, the well, when the therapist mentions the phrase paranoid schizophrenia, there is the people are coming for me. There's also a version that's grandiose. That is like, I'm special and I have a special powers and a special role in the world. We don't hear him really verbalize that he's special. It's just the voices are telling him that he's special, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily that he, he doesn't verbally say that he believes that 100%. Yeah, weirdly, the narrative is the one, or the director's cut narrative is like, nah, man, you're special and shows us that he's special. Yeah, I don't get that impression from him. And the paranoid is usually this fear. So that's the thing. The paranoia is usually everyone's out to get me. I need to get them before they get me or I need to hide from everybody. He doesn't show that, though. So it's not he might actually be, I would say, undifferentiated. Although now that I think about it, there is a scene in the director's cut that isn't in the theatrical where he stands up and reads his poem in English class about Frank. And he talks about how in the poem, I can't remember the the lead up to it about how the children are going to be lost, but he's going to be the one that sees them and does X, Y, and Z. And then the conclusion is, because I am Donnie Darko, which sounds a little (laughs) bit more towards the grandiose stuff, this idea of, well, I'm exempt because I am Donnie Darko. I'm like, this is a terrible poem, bro, but it's very revealing. Yeah, I would track that more. I just don't see, like, traditional grandiosity and and how it's shot. But, like, Mm -hmm. Gyllenhaal brings it, though. Like the facial expressions, the the social awkwardness thing, the not really being tuned into other surroundings a lot of the time is really on point and I think super well done. And I think it's kind of interesting that we can read the 
schizophrenia diagnosis so strongly into this when in the director's cut, according to Richard Kelly's vision in his mind, Donnie isn't schizophrenic whatsoever, right? He is the receiver in this mythic sci-fi odyssey. And so yeah, the collapse there in terms of mental illness versus fantasy storytelling is kind of curious. It was always weird to me, like now that I think about the director's cut, so it, it just doesn't quite map on, you know, I always bring overly critical, overly academic perspectives to it. That's why you're here. The whole, like, what medication is he on? Oh, she says is it's a placebo in the director's cut? What would be the motivation for a therapist to prescribe Donnie a placebo? That idea is if she thinks he's kind of, well, again, if she thinks consciously or unconsciously, he's exaggerating these symptoms, he's faking it for some reason to see if he responded to the fake medication, right? So if it's like, oh, he's just a clever kid and he's like fucking with everybody to see what he can, you know, Mm -hmm. do. He's too clever for his own good and he doesn't want to deal with school or parents. Well, if he takes the medication and it's not real and his symptoms get better, that way we know that. It's very common with factitious disorder or conversion disorder. This would be more factitious where unconsciously your body creates symptoms that don't have a, a known cause. Mm -hmm. So that's a common reason you'd give somebody a a placebo, because often they will respond to it and you'll be like, okay, cool. Did we just address this? It does seem like, and this is where shit gets a little weird, well, even more weird with the director's cut, is that, so we have this receiver who is chosen. I do like this idea that uh, maybe somebody who's predisposed to having delusions or believing in certain things that not everybody would is a great yeah person to become the receiver. And then around the receiver are the manipulated living and the manipulated dead. And the manipulated living are people who, and this is where it got sort of strange. I had to like really relook at this and read the Roberta Sparrow book because there are scanned in pages on the original theatrical cut that you can read. And so basically it's not that we go into a t- alternate universe. It's that the tangent universe brings the main people with them. So this is still like shadow versions of the primary universe people who are now trying to save themselves at all cost in the primary universe by manipulating the receiver into getting this artifact back to the primary universe. Like somewhat as a subconscious action on their parts, I believe, according to Kelly. Yeah, and so in that regard, suddenly the therapist, if she's a manipulated living that is trying to uphold Donnie's quest, would thus then prescribe placebos in this version because she knows he's not actually suffering anything other than being the receiver and so like doesn't want to hamper him in any way on his quest, which is a whole other layer of clusterfuckery. Well, if you wanted to do that, there's tons of other things she could do to like support his delusion and encourage it and everything. Mm-hmm. Like, if that was the thing, we're meant to believe that hardcore. I think she could have gone a lot harder on it. They could have made that, you know, if they if, mm-hmm. if Kelly wanted to make that clear, he could have. Because she's skeptical. She doesn't really do whole, whole bunches of shit, by the way. Right. She just mm-hmm. like, let's hypnotize you. Let's ask you all these classic questions about your your family and how you feel about everybody. Generic psych 101 therapy. But she also doesn't be like, well, I think you should listen to Frank. Like, wh- oh, there's wisdom Frank has to tell you. She could have totally backed that up if there was a deliberate conscious 
if it was very subtle. And it also doesn't make sense with the director's cut because then her like outing Donnie as having paranoid schizophrenia in the director's cut would just, again, typically freak out the parents more and the parents would get more controlling, not like, hey, don't worry mm-hmm. about it. We got it under control. Director's cut doesn't make any sense in a lot of ways because trying to explain it more actually creates more plot holes in the way that the original cut was just like, there's all this dreamscape stuff. So like, it just loosely comes together. But yeah, trying to actually give more creates more questions in some ways. Because yeah, why isn't this therapist trying to manipulate him more if she knows or if that's like her agenda is an excellent question. She's pretty useless, I gotta say. (laughs) She doesn't do anything for and against him. And even the like, hey, mom's going out of town. Call the therapist if you need something. Like, yeah, that's what you do for somebody with paranoid schizophrenia. You say, hey, I trust you to determine what you need. But hey, go to therapy that week. Oh, that's like a pretty, yeah, that's a, that's a ethically questionable sitch. How, yeah, this question of to what extent the manipulated living in the director's cut do and don't know what's going on is going to remain a kind of curious question, right? Because we've got, as Benji mentioned, these text blocks from the book that are going to kind of float up to the screen. And when they introduce the concept of the manipulated living, it's going to be over another deleted scene where Jenna Malone is playing an outrun video game at an arcade, or technically Donnie is, and she's just looking at him with this curious expression like she is there and waiting for the next manipulative moment or that she's one of these very prime manipulative people in his life. The narrative is going to do stuff to introduce this idea that like, no, these people are somewhat low-key aware of their role in his life and why she also might just really quickly accept like, yeah, I'll go with you because that's what needs to happen. Very strange. We also have the manipulated dead. In finishing setting up this verse, so we've got the receiver, we've got the manipulated living, and then we have the manipulated dead. And the manipulated dead are ones who die in the tangent universe and thus are these all-knowing beings. And the two manipulated dead in this are Frank the bunny and Gretchen the girlfriend. So the two of them really know what's up. They are working together to manipulate Donnie into this complete event in which their deaths occur so that the time loop cul-de-sac can close. So we have this whole like mythos that's set up. We also get the ideas of this like very metaphysical time travel logic in which metal and water are the most important components of time travel. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, just to give you an idea of how infuriating the director's commentary to this thing can be, in one of them, it, there during the scene where Donnie is first pushing his hands up like towards the camera and looking at Frank and Frank is looking back at him. The first time you saw this, did you say to yourself, what is that? What What is Donnie pushing up against? What What is causing that? Did that question occur to you? No, I just let it happen. Exactly. You just let it happen because it doesn't matter what it is that's pushing Donnie's hand. In the commentary, he makes it very clear. Yes, so you see, these are water molecules coming together and forming that wall that allow Donnie to see Frank, who is now manifesting through metamolecules as well. What does that have to do with anything? It's like midi-chlorians. <laughs> that I... 
Fuck you, I was thinking that the entire time. Okay, so this, again, this is where we get into possible death of the author action or just the idea that some things don't require explanation or that we don't need. I think, yeah, like you just said, the biggest pop culture example of getting an explanation that we did not need, did not want, definitely comes from Star Wars. I, some people would say that the prequels in general are an explanation we did not need, but especially midi-chlorians, because before the midi-chlorians, the Force was just the energy of of the universe, the energy created by all living things, that's all that we need to know. And, you know, we're told that a Jedi or a Force user is just someone who has learned how to harness that energy correctly. So it is, like, through their merit that they are allowed to use the Force as they are. Again, the movie doesn't tell us that, but that's just what we get from it. You go to midi-chlorians, and suddenly it's, uh, do you have enough midi-chlorians? Well, if you have this many, you get to be a Jedi. If you have this many, you get to be Yoda. And if you have this many, you get to be Space Jesus, which is what Anakin Skywalker is, apparently. And also, apparently, Donnie Darko, because the other thing about the director's cut slash the um, commentary is that Donnie Darko, he has superpowers. And so being the receiver gives him superpowers, like telekinesis and quick mobility and super strength, which is why in the pipe bursting scene, he was able to reach the height levels and the strength levels needed to embed that axe in that little statue's skull. Ah, thanks, Richard. Thank you. I was... Man, that was ruining the movie for me, but now I know... Yeah, we wanted that kind of, like, enigmatic stuff in the original cut. That was that was kind of fun and weird. Wait, this dreamscape is doing stuff that shouldn't be physically possible. But no, apparently it is metaphysically possible in the director's cut because dude's a superhero. It, he's just a dark superhero that has some superhero powers. The other additions to the director's cut that are kind of strange curiosities, they're going to insert these little things that are supposed to feel more sci-fi. We get inserts of... Re- Really close-up shots of eyes or Donnie's eye, very Requiem for a Dream style, just really extreme close-ups on the iris. That was the first thing I thought of too, and I didn't really have a problem with the irises too much, but I have a feeling that when they were originally cutting this, Requiem had just come out, and someone must have said to like Richard, like, dude, that comes off as a huge ripoff of that thing. Their eyes are like a big deal. Like, oh. Yeah, good point. I'll check it out. Well, he just kind of, uh, on the commentary, is talking about the the sort of eyes always watching that there's some sort of, you know, deus ex machina. And then we're also going to get these shots of waves and water. And apparently this is the building swell of Donnie Darko's superpowers, that he's harnessing that water power consistently to grow his superpowers. And... Yeah, we're going to get some different images that Kelly describes as like kind of comic book shots and stuff to try to link this more strongly to the superhero genre. And this is just like astounding to me in terms of the difference between these two films. We can't really think of another director's cut that... I mean, there are, I'm sure there are other director's cuts out there that change the movie for the worse. Uh, most people say, like, oh, a director's cut, that's the original vision, so it obviously is better. And whether or not this is better or worse is subjective, obviously, but we can't really think of another movie where the director's cut just changes the genre of the film. The fundamental premise and function of these two films are so vastly different. Because in the first one, you have this just cool, strange dream walk through mental illness. 
in an indie fashion. Yeah. It's a slow burn, kind of creepy, fantastical elements that are not bashing you over the head with anything. They're not in your face. You're just watching a very realistic story, but there's just some extra sci-fi fantasy elements kind of trickling in a little bit, and everything is kept vague throughout, which is good. I like that because it allows a level of applicability to it. You can put yourself in Donnie's shoes a little bit because the background of what's happening to him is kept vague. When you go to the director's cut, you lose that because we're told precisely what is happening to Donnie. The thing is, is that it's not necessarily that every movie has to have a protagonist that the audience can relate to. There are certainly superhero movies that are very, very popular that a lot of audience members relate to in different ways. When the director's cut came out, it did get initial praise from a lot of critics as being a more lucid, understandable film, that they understood the mythos a little bit better because they were kind of walked through it slightly. Then some years pass, and then in, in retrospect, a lot of people, this film kind of consistently turns up on the top 10 lists of directors who ruin their own movies with director's cuts and things. So it was kind of interesting <laughs> that there was this moment of like, yeah, okay, this is clearer. And then that sort of take back of like, wait, but we don't actually want it to be any clearer. And I think it's because, yeah, at first you're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Now he's the receiver and these people are manipulating him. But then when you think too strongly about it, you're like, no, this doesn't make sense either. And somehow that's more frustrating because you have a film that's trying to give you answers, but not actually providing them versus a film that's like, here's some stuff that happened. Good luck. So <laughs> it really sort of depends on the type of viewer you are and what type of experience you like out of a movie. And yeah, the, the second one might work in some ways. If I hadn't seen the first one first and already had a very strong yeah. opinion developed on what Donnie Darko was and what it was to me. I don't know if the director's cut would bother me as much. I'd probably just be like, all right, this is kind of a semi-forgettable sci-fi film, <laughs> right? Like, whatever. I, I don't think it would have made me angry in the way that it does now. That's the thing. Like, I got angrier the more I looked into all of this. When I picked up the... Uh, the copy that I got of the movie was the uh, Blu-ray from Arrow Video, which they did a nice like 4K restoration. The film looks awesome, and rewatching that reminded me of all the things I liked and remembered about the film, and it was really cool. And I hadn't seen the director's cut quite yet. I watched the director's commentary to it, which is Kelly and Gyllenhaal talking about the movie, and I noticed that Richard Kelly kept bringing up things that were not at all obvious in the movie. I I'm pretty sure he recorded this commentary prior to the director's cut being a thing or being offered to do a director's cut. I'm going to place it around 2002, 2003, because at one point he says, yeah, this movie doesn't have a soundtrack. Uh, you can download it from Napster if you want. I'm like, well, okay, that is a dated reference if I ever heard one. Yeah, Napster. No one cared about Napster after 2004 or so. But this is where he kept bringing up like, 
Yeah, so Gretchen here, she just asked Donnie, you know, uh, Donnie Darko, that's a superhero name. So you can really tell, like, she is, like, aware of this new tangent universe that she's in, and she knows that Donnie is the chosen one. He's a superhero. And I'm listening to this like, what the fuck are you talking about, Richard Kelly? Dickie Kells, this makes no sense. What what are you going on? And, like, the stuff about how Frank is Donnie Darko's sister's boyfriend. It took Richard Kelly to hear him talk about it. That's a very important element. But it's something that is very, very vaguely communicated in the theatrical cut of this film, and maybe less vaguely in the director's cut, but even in the director's cut, it doesn't make much sense. We don't have a scene of Maggie and James Duvall together at any point. We never see her describing her boyfriend, Frank, or anything like that. We have some vague notion that she's dating a guy. The director's cut has that scene where she's on the phone. She's like, look, man, you're the reason I'm taking a year off of school. Apparently also when she gets dropped off at her house right before the jet engine crashes, she's supposed to be being dropped off by Frank. And that uh, that means something, apparently. Well, I mean, I guess it just shows that Frank has been also interwoven as a regular non-bunny person this whole time. Only it doesn't. The main thrust of, I think, how I feel about all of this is that the less I hear from the author, the more I enjoy the movie. And that's why I wanted to kind of bring up the whole death of the author concept. And we'll paint in very broad strokes about death of the author, because otherwise I think you're going to spend an hour going into formalism, new criticism, structuralism, post-structuralism, and we just don't have time. You're not wrong. Broad strokes here. Death of the author is an essay by French writer Roland Barthes from 1967. Basically, he says that when you read something or you watch something, its interpretation is entirely yours, and it can be a different interpretation you have of it every single time. And the input from the author really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the author's intentions were or what their background was. Every time you read or experience something, it is yours. And it's not a hard or fast rule because, I mean, there are definitely things that I enjoy getting more background on. Like one of my favorite books in high school was this annotated copy of The Three Musketeers, because it kept giving like background history lessons on like where the book was coming from. And that helps you understand it more. But sometimes it doesn't help you understand things more. It makes you understand even less, such as the case of Donnie Darko. Yeah, Richard Kelly is going to have a very interesting relationship to his films in general. He doesn't have very many of them, but <laughs> it's hard to fully separate Richard Kelly from his work. It's also hard to put him into his work. And the one thing that I will give Richard Kelly due respect for is that on the commentary talking about the director's cut, he said multiple times that this is not the canonical version, that... He wants people to think of the director's cut as a sort of remix revisitation that is a mm -hmm. potential interpretation of the narrative, and that this is what kind of he had in his mind, but he's also very proud of the theatrical release, and he doesn't want to take that away from anybody. So this is just an alternative vision. And I like that as an idea that this is one remix interpretation. R. Kelly came out with his remix edition. Yes, it's the R. Kelly remix. <laughs> and that unfortunately also does not come out by itself as a director's cut, right? Without the commentary, without him saying, no, this is not mm. canonical. The way that director's cuts generally work in the filmic world is that often those are then taken as the canonical interpretation, right? So we have that complicating things too. Yeah, it's a little misleading to say, this is not canonical, 
this thing that's called the director's cut of my movie that I'm giving you. Well, then what is canonical, Richard? What is the actual movie? I think, you know, long ago when we talked about Clue, we said that the thing that probably frustrated critics a lot back in the day was that they were denied a canonical ending to that movie. You weren't really mm-hmm. told what the real ending was, and that was frustrating for some people. I mean, imagine doing that with a whole movie. You're given a whole movie, you're like, eh, this isn't an actual thing. Yeah, it's like, is this a indie, cool, paranoid dreamscape, or is this a sci-fi movie about superheroes and time travel? <laughs> Which one yeah. is it? Because we fundamentally get two very different genre movies. I'll, I'll give it to him that he doesn't want to deny people the theatrical cut, because the inverse of that is George Lucas, where we've got special editions of Star Wars, and we're like, okay, George, that's the movie that you, you wanted to make back in the day, but you couldn't. Okay, that's cool. That's yours. Some people enjoy that. Uh, let me see the original version of that, though. Oh, oh, I can't? Why can't I? I really should be able to. But even with some of the changes that George Lucas made in terms of Han shooting first or not shooting first, that's going to change that character. Midi-chlorians mm-hmm. versus not comes closer to changing the universe, but it still is set within a space scape with access to force manipulating elements. So the the genre stays the same. I can't mm-hmm. think of another movie that actually switches genres and fundamental right. premises with just yeah. 20 extra minutes. Look, we can dwell on on Die Dark all the time or you know what we can get down to what really matters here which is his spiritual sequel slash remake slash sophomore effort, Southland Tales. Tell me about Southland Tales, London. How great is Southland Tales? It's pretty great. So Southland Tales is going to be his follow-up movie. We will probably do it on this cast at some point because it is a cruel, cruel film um, if there ever was one. But Southland Tales came out after the director's cut of Donnie Darko, but it was actually written before the director's cut of Donnie Darko happened. And so what we have in Southland Tales is just another attempt at telling the story of this time travel tangent universe idea. And that's interesting talking about, once again, the author's role in their own works, is that Richard Kelly seems to have this story that he really wants to get out there. And that story is this idea of tangential universes and time travel. And he seems like he's going to just grasp onto any potential story narrative he can to try to get this tangent universe message out there. And it maintains... It's unsuccessful <laughs> quality um, every time he does it because he hasn't seemed to yet be able to really grasp onto like the best way to get this tangent universe thing out there because it didn't work in Donnie Darko really. It doesn't work in Southland Tales. Well, I think it did work in Donnie Darko. It's just the key is don't explain it. Just show us. Show, don't tell us. That's true, but what we would not have gained or gathered from watching narratives that don't try to explain it is that nobody would go to the, oh, obviously this person is a receiver who's trying to get the artifact back to the prime universe. Like, that is not an interpretation that anybody comes away from the theatrical version with. Mm. It's not even an interpretation that anybody comes away from Southland Tales with, honestly. And that's because, like, he keeps trying to get this narrative out there, but then sort of shying away from using that as, like, the central plot and instead just kind of puts these little clips on of this as, like, this might be what's going on. And you're like, well, you know, if you're going to go for it, just fully go for it. Yeah, I think you're. I think the time travel story that he wants to tell film just might not be the right medium for it, or he just hasn't found that 
in yet. I know that with Southland Tales, there were comic books that were first few chapters to the thing. So this is another Kelly thing, is that he really likes multimedia platforms. You have to generally do your research and your free-thinking symbology connections and whatnot with his stuff. So in Southland Tales, yet you are required in order to access the narrative to also have read the comic books that go along with it and the Book of Revelations and T.S. Eliot's poetry. So there's like a lot of outside intertextuality stuff that you need to bring to the table. Donnie Darko has an element of that, but not quite, because I, mm-hmm. as we've talked about, the theatrical version works great on its own as this sort of unanswered thing. Like, you feel like there's answers, even if you're not quite sure what those are. There was a brief period of time in between that and the director's cut where some of these answers, quote-unquote answers, that are hinted at in the director's cut were findable, and that was mostly through the Donnie Darko website. So the Donnie Darko website was super fucking cool. It was also aggravating as fuck, but it was also really cool. It operated in the same kind of weird logical space. So you signed on to it and it was just like this abusive media flash player, right? So you signed on to it and it would have, it has been, and then it would have the days, years, months, whatever, since the world <laughs> ended is what like the first page will say. I actually checked. You can still find this like site archived. So now it says like <laughs> it has been 6,000 such and such days since the world ended. So it's like it's still counting down, which is pretty great. Or counting back up, I guess, because the world ended according to this website. Then you have to find your way like clicking around this site. And sometimes you have to answer some questions that'll like pop up. It's like, if you've been here before, enter the password (laughs) or begin the journey and you click, you know, begin the journey. And there's like little puzzles and stuff that you have to do. There's passcodes. Like her name was brought with aviation and you're like Sparrow. And then it brings you into the Roberta Sparrow files. And Mm -hmm. so you learn all of this stuff where it's like, would you like to know more? And then you can push like the Y versus no code of like HTML coding. So it's like this whole stuff. I don't know how navigational it would be to somebody who is (laughs) not familiar with early flash player but at the time we we were the blossoming youth so you learn a lot of cool weird stuff through this deep dive of web matrices you learn some things about roberta sparrow's background you learn stuff about donnie's background including his previous police files of the time when he was in a juvenile detention facility for burning down the house we learned that he used to sleepwalk there as well and there were all this five paperwork from 1986 of whether or not this was an attempt to escape prison and so his therapist was like no he has a past habit of sleepwalking so I don't think this was an actual conscious attempt to escape and that's kind of curious this idea that he's been sleepwalking two years prior to Donnie Darko's narrative starting so he does have a habit of this somblatory activity that is independent from the tangent universe being created. We just learn kind of like a whole bunch of little stuff. We also get patches of the time travel book from Roberta Sparrow that describes Roberta Sparrow's theory. And before director's cut, I actually loved this weird receiver stuff because it wasn't canonical to the film. Like the film wasn't telling me this is what happened. The research, like if I wanted to enter as a viewer, an audience member of this film, 
the paranoid world of Donnie Darko and say, no, are there answers to be found here? Is this maybe this boy is just going through a psychotic break and this is what's happening. But Donnie Darko seems to believe that there's some type of larger time travel based conspiracy. So if I choose to believe his side of the story and I help him research and I go and I access those files, what I can find are these different alternative theories posited not by the director, not by the canon of the movie, but by this uh, this cool grandma death yeah. sparrow cat, right? Who's like, well, maybe this is what's happening. And that was so satisfying. So I really loved that sweet spot where I was able, if I was an extra fan and wanted to try to figure out what could possibly be happening in this paranoid world and choose whether or not, yeah, Roberta Sparrow's onto something. Or if I'm like, nah, she probably got this and this right, but not this. That was just an option. And it was a really cool multi media option. So I think that was Kelly's best in terms of trying to work in alternative media to support and augment the story, but it wasn't required for the story. And I think that's where he kind of failed with Southland Tales, but we'll get into Southland Tales a different day. Yeah. I like the idea of having like some extra information on the internet that just gives you more background, but not necessarily answers to anything i think again that just gives you background info that you can look into and might enrich the show for you but it doesn't at all explain the mysteries of the show yeah we don't want definitive stuff like we want to navigate this world yeah, expand don't explain that's like might be the general concept here is don't give us something that could potentially tell us yeah, you're wrong about this. That's another element of Death of the Author is that it is saying that there is no definitive interpretation of a body of art. It is wholly on the observer to interpret things for themselves. And again, that interpretation can be different each time that you explore it. So yeah, don't give a definitive explanation, but give us a little bit more, more of the universe we can walk around in. That's fine. And when you're armed with this theory, the original cut becomes such an even more fun paranoid landscape because there's a scene that still remains kind of confusing that Drew Barrymore and Noah Wiley are sitting in the teacher's lounge looking at each other and one of them's like, Donnie Darko, huh? And the other one's like, I know, right? There's this weird exchange where they seem to be talking about Donnie Darko as the one for something. And so if you have read Roberta Sparrow's book or you found her theory, you're like, oh shit, are these manipulating individuals? Is, do they know that he's some sort of chosen one and, and they're manipulating him? And you get into this strange paranoid mind space because you're like, that's nowhere confirmed or denied in the narrative, but like, holy shit, are they after him? And it takes you into that headspace. It's super fun. The other thing, though, that is very important now to talk about is the difference in just the overall character takeaways of these two films. And it goes back to that Noah Wiley conversation mm. where they talk about destiny and gods and fate and such things. And Donnie is wanting to know if time is an absolute and a construct that there's no deviating from. And you could see that path and you could just see to the end. And Noah is positing, no, if you could see it, you would then have a choice. There's this element of free will that you could choose not to. 
Donnie's like, no, but I, I mean, if these little rainbow slinky things, it's also great that he's wearing a rainbow slinky in this scene to really visually <laughs> connect adorable. this idea yeah. more fully of like what it is that's kind of coming out of these people's chests. If this is a tether that is unbreakable, if this is your predestined path, and even if you could see it, you couldn't actually choose then what does that mean? And so that's when they kind of cut off the conversation on this ending point of, if you knew the future, could you actually change it or not? Is destiny set or is there an element of free will? And what becomes very interesting with the theatrical versus the director's cut is that these films are going to provide two starkly different answers. In the first one, the answer is that to this question is people have free will because it seems to imply that Donnie makes a choice to return to his bedroom and either end this hallucination, this paranoid delusion that he's been caught and trapped in. I don't think it's an all a dream type of narrative, but more of a if this is a schizophrenic mm-hmm. narrative then he's been suffering delusions for the past month, losing time, glitching on time, and decided the best thing to do for everybody would be to kill himself in some capacity. If there's a strange time travel element, then he's deciding, no, I'm going to close this loop and I'm going to go back and remove this for other people. That's free choice either way, right? That's some free will. He thinks he can see the future and he chooses something else. And all of the characters, then, their choices in the original, they matter in some capacity. They all have agency that they can go on and live their lives and do what they're doing. In the director's cut, if he is the predestined receiver and all of the people around him are not free agents of their own stories, but simply the shadow people that are being manipulated towards one driven end, there is no free will there, right? These are all puppets of some directorial deus ex machina design that are getting pushed on their little slinky strings to one conclusion. And that is interesting in and of itself that we get with these two different narratives, two very different answers to the original pitch of time travel paradox in and of itself. Indeed. The school, ki- the school teacher, Noah Wiley's character, he's an interesting character. Drew Barrymore, interesting character. Donnie, I mean, Donnie, obviously, is fascinating. But to me, the, the, the character that brought up the most questions that I wanted to know the most about was Samantha Darko. Did we ever get anything exploring Samantha Darko? So Samantha Darko, the youngest sister of the Darko family, with seven years later, the same actress would sign up to be in a sequel, S. Darko. (laughs) She and I think one of the producers are the only connection to the original cast and crew of Donnie Darko. This is not a Richard Kelly sanctioned production. It is terrible. It is so (laughs) bad. I'm not even going to try to explain the plot. I did try to watch it. Don't. Just don't. That's all. That's all I have to say there. <laughs> in the commentary to the director's cut, I think at the towards the very end, Kevin Smith asked Kelly, "Well, what, what do you think, man? You're gonna, you know, redo this again? You're gonna do a sequel?" And Kelly just says, "Oh no, no, a sequel to this would be a terrible idea. I wouldn't do that. No, you can't." Not even Richard Kelly would expand on the Donnie Darker universe. That should tell you something. <laughs> like, just don't. Although we did have that lingering question of like, so what does Jim Cunningham do in this narrative overall in the director's like, what is version? His... 
Because in the first one, like, he... Well, in both, he's woven through quite substantially. And the first one, it does play into the idea of free choice, that there are things that Donnie Darko is the one who can overcome his fears of being alone and whatnot, or dying alone and embracing that. So his narrative actually kind of makes sense. I don't see what his purpose is in the director's version of receivers and manipulators. I do not either. I don't see anyone's purpose in that version. Well, I mean, the ones that are immediately around, their purpose would be just to manipulate Donnie into this elevated Mm. space of sacrifice. But, and I mean, maybe. Yeah, of all the things that Richard Kelly expoused upon endlessly uh, in his commentaries, he never really explained too much about Swayze's character. Yeah, he's just this motivational speaking pedophile that's just really intricately mixed up in the narrative but doesn't seem to serve an overall purpose in the director's version so i don't know mystery maybe he's on his own tangential quest and we just don't know but top five i have an honorable mention to jason schwartzman okay why apparently when the script was first going around hollywood one of the first a-list people to pick up on it was jason schwartzman who was really hot off of rushmore and he was the first one to bring it to attention of other producers and was originally cast as donnie darko honorable mention to him my true number five is james duvall because he's just adorable in general what was so funny to me was that when the when richard kelly is talking about like casting frank he's like i just wanted like the guy underneath this really scary mask to be like some super nice guy. And James Duvall is the nicest guy ever. What you hear that said about an actor, you're like, oh, okay, sure, whatever. But then like on the documentary that's on the Arrow release of this movie, there are interviews with James Duvall and he is like just the sweetest fucking guy of all time. He's like just the super nice, like affable dude. There's a great moment where he's describing how much time he was going to spend in the rabbit suit. And he said that the director told him artistically, it would be great if the actor who is unmasked is always the actor who's in the suit. And James Duvall says, well, well, financially, I would love to work as many days in this movie as I can, so I am totally down for being in that suit every single day. Awesome. So he is in the suit. Nice. My number five, Jake Gyllenhaal. Right on. He he does a good job as Donnie. Those manic little mm-hmm. faces. He embodies this character. I will always think of this character probably first when I think Jake Gyllenhaal. It, it's that and Nightcrawler, I think. Yeah, he's also really great in Nightcrawler. He's, he's a talented dude. Who's your number four? My number four is the cinematographer. I've forgotten his name already. The cinematographer, he's a really cool dude. His career goes way back. He was like second unit on Blade Runner. And the way that he described working with Richard Kelly, I will not tell you how to direct this film and I will achieve whatever it is you think you need to see within reason and also not treat cinematography like it's some sort of like magician's game or what have you. But you do need to understand what you can and cannot do. They were working on that opening scene, like the moving shots to the school. And originally, Richard Kelly said, like, this has got to be one long thing. Like, from the time that Donnie hops off that bus to the time that we stop on the girls dancing, it's all one thing. And the cinematographer said, oh, okay, here, let's let's do this. I'll give you this camera. You have someone do the things you want Donnie to be doing. And you go ahead and you follow him and see how long it takes you. And he says that uh, Richard Kelly went off and did that, tried to do that, and then came back about 10 minutes later. He's like, yeah, we can cut this up. Basically just saying, like, yeah, there's no way in hell that we're going to be able to pull off this, like, single tracking shot that lasts three minutes or so. They only had 28 days to film the movie, so this is just not something they're able to pull off. 
It does look like a tracking shot in a certain way, though. Your mind is tricked into it. And the music in that scene is really smooth, too, in terms of just kind of, like, walking through. I, I did forget to... I guess the shout-out to some of the music in this, particularly the haunting atmospheric orchestral music that happens when Frank first reveals himself in the movie theater. It's really great. My number four is Beth Grant. She brought us I Doubt Your Commitment to Sparkle Motion, so... She was committed to Sparkle Motion like like nobody else was. Let's just, let's just hear it one more time. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's the good stuff, Beth. Or I've never doubted her commitment to Sparkle Motion. She tends to get typecast a lot into this type of role, but she nails it yeah. every time. <laughs> so, yeah, Beth Grant, I adore you. I adore your existence. Who's your number three? My number three is Drew Barrymore. Really, she is just the one we have to thank for the movie happening because her production company was the thing that really picked up the movie and got it made. And one of the best stories, they were in the scene where the boys are shooting at glass bottles and they're talking about the Smurfs. Originally, they were going to shoot at Smurf figurines and they have to clear that. And Richard Kelly says, one of the most surreal things of all time was Drew Barrymore sitting down in our office is now on the phone with this 90-year-old Frenchman, the guy who holds the key to Smurf clearance. And she talks to him for about five minutes, and he's just like, yes, okay. Smurfs. He got the copy of the script, and apparently this notion of Smurfette was swayed by the Smurfs' beautiful and pure way of life. That's an accurate interpretation of the Smurfs. Yeah, you can, you can do it. Yeah, and the fact that the Smurfs don't have genitals, yeah. they just kind of amorphously asexually reproduce, was also completely accurate. Jake Gyllenhaal slash Johnny Darko slash Richard Kelly has a very strong, accurate knowledge of Smurf. Lore. It was all for naught because on the day that they were supposed to shoot at Smurf figurines, they couldn't find the figurines anywhere, so they just shot at glass bottles. Fair enough, but they still got to talk about Smurf sexuality. Point being, Drew Barrymore, she helped make it happen and believed in Richard Kelly, so props to her. Yeah, number three, whoever made the Frank bunny suit. So I know that Richard <laughs> yes. Kelly designed the Frank bunny suit, but whoever physically made it, maybe that was Richard Kelly himself, I don't know, but it's the perfect design for this character. A, a bunny suit should not be scary to look at or terrifying, but this one is. And it's perfect. It is. It's so great. It, yeah. It's a weird blend of aesthetics. It's art. So yeah, props bunny suit. It is the mascot of this movie. Who's your number two? My number two is, is Jake. Jake G himself. Uh, I think that he gives such an awesome performance in this thing. The images of him, like his head tilted, staring up at... Frank with those eyes stuck with me over the course of nearly 20 years after I saw this film. Like I said, I don't think I had rewatched this between 2001 and just recently, and that image still stuck with me. And the, he just brought a creepy yet suffering presence to this that I don't think any other actor could have done quite the same way and to such perfect effect. Fair enough. My number two is Richard Kelly. 
All We're right. going to put him up there. Mm-hmm. This, I do really, really love the theatrical version of Donnie Darko, and that is also his creation. He was the one to edit this film, so he does have the capacity to edit the film, even if he just doesn't want to. And I, I do think he tapped into something. I think it's a lot of scope and vision, especially for a first-time director at the time. I think he's talented. I think he has a lot of ideas. I don't think he's quite quite yet figured out after Donnie Darko how to fully filter all of the ideas he wants to get in into a two-hour runtime, and so that is tricky, but I, I can see what he's trying to do with his multimedia vision in a world in which a fan base or an audience base would just willingly and happily interact with a bunch of different types of media in order to piece together a puzzle of a story. I love that he's trying to do that. I just don't always support the way that that comes out, (laughs) but I do feel bad for him too that he hasn't really gone on to do a lot after those two things. Well, as often happens, I have to say fuck you because Richard Kelly is my number one for basically all of those reasons as well. As much as I kind of ranted against him throwing in all these extra details in his director's cuts and on his commentaries and what have you, we still have the theatrical version of this film, which is his creation and would not have happened without him. And I don't want to live, I would happily live in a world without the director's cut of this movie, but I would not want to live in a world that doesn't have the original theatrical version of (laughs) Donnie Darko in it. And that version would not exist if it were not for Richard Kelly. Despite everything else, respect, dude. You earned it. Yeah. And you know, I have like kind of a, a similar love-hate relationship with Southland Tales. There's something I really like about Southland Tales. I would watch whatever Richard Kelly comes up with next. Like, I'm in for it. I know that he has a movie that from 2009 called The Box, I believe. Yeah, I still need to watch that, yeah, actually. Yeah, I know. I haven't seen it. I just know, I know that Cameron Diaz is in it, I believe. Yes, she is. Your number one, London. Take us there. My number one is, I don't know how to pronounce this name, actually, like Gary Yules. Yules. Okay. Yules. The singer of our Mad World cover. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that song so much. I mean, it was it was good in the 80s, Tears of Fears version. But this, oh my God. The cover just elevated it to a new level to yeah. the extent that it actually also did a lot of things for dark, spooky, sad, melancholic covers of songs in general. A lot of people, once they could see what Mad World did, they were like, yeah, we want to make our own moody cover songs of other songs from the 80s. So just a lot of great stuff came out of having this cover. But it is so effective in that final sequence. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect song there to the extent that people really do associate this film and that song together a lot and then that song went on to have its own life and career by itself it's just a really great cover it's so good so i'm just really happy that that exists in the world and that donnie darko provided a platform to let it be seen and heard and that it is circulated to the extent that it is now just so fucking good cruelty rating what are we rating here? Are we rating the movie or are we rating the experience of watching all of this? Generally, the cruelty rating is, it's not the good or badness of the movie. It's just how cruel or taxing of an experience it is to watch it. Then I would put this one a little high. For our purposes, you know, we watched two versions of this film and really got into the extra features surrounding it. And that was not a good, pro- a good process for me. 
And like we say, cruelty isn't necessarily sadism. It can also be how much does this make you aware of the artifice of filmmaking and of the medium of film. And yeah, this one did it a lot. Yeah, this is a fairly cruel film to its audience. Mm. It's very independent. The theatrical version does not provide a lot of answers. There's a lot of deduction that has to happen. There's a lot of just being okay with letting things not necessarily come together, letting things flow. So I would say it's about a six or seven, probably, Mm -hmm. on a one to ten cruelty scale in terms of what it demands of its audience. The director's cut is cruel in a different way, as we've discussed, if you've Mm -hmm. already seen the theatrical one, in terms of trying to rewrap your head around this sudden induction of superhero mythos. If the director's cut's the first one that you watch, then critics have said it is theoretically less cruel because there's more hand-holding. And so then, yeah, maybe it becomes more of like a five or a six in terms of how taxing it is on its audience to understand Mm -hmm. the narrative. But then if you think about it any harder, it does become kind of more like an eight because the answers that it's hand-holding you through don't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, my rating is for kind of the overall experience of watching both films. Okay. It was a cruel evolution from artsy, independent film that has enough open-endedness to it that I can apply whatever interpretation I want to, to a filmmaker who while visionary is obsessed with hand-holding every you every step of the way and not allowing you to interpret a film as you please that to me is a very cruel process to go through so that's why i'm putting it an eight all right there you have it well i dr mm-hmm. michelle vaughn we would like to thank you for giving us your time giving us your cool. expertise and giving us everything that you have <laughs> i just want to thank you for your commitment to sparkle motion Yes. I think, you know, that the connection is a little bad. Like, on my screen, you don't look, uh, you look a little wishy-washy. You're not very clear there, London. Perhaps my tangential universe that I preside over is collapsing in on itself. And we have to stop that, and I think... Zero days. We must return the artifact. Two minutes. And only then, once we have closed the loop and returned the artifact with the help of the manipulated dead... Can we ever achieve any amounts of clarity? I'd probably let the tangential universe collapse if it meant I didn't have to see you again. Fuck off. Sometime back, the boys and I dreamed of the dance for the young people, and things sort of caught on. So we thought we'd uh, do it for you folks tonight. With a little help from the quintet and the Lee Morrison dancers, it's called the Bunny Hop.
that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space! <laughs> <laughs> 